This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning, everybody. You made it another week. Congratulations. You know, sometimes you wonder, am I going to be able to make it another week? Well, you did. So get over yourself and get ready for a great weekend. We got a wonderful show today. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, solar power, wind power versus coal. Is it really killing coal or is it actually just benefiting your pocketbook? I mean, I don't always feel like I am even connected to solar power, even though all my neighbors have solar panels. But we're going to be talking the, the real math behind it, the, the math behind the electrical grid, um, how solar works in lowering costs, but also uh, not just solar, but wind power as well. Lots of interesting stuff. Um, and really, maybe stuff you've never really understood about the grid. Like, it's, it's just never going to work. Wind power will never work because there's days where it's not windy. I mean, I already see that. So we'll get to the real uh, science behind the grid, folks. There's some pretty interesting learnings, I think, for all of us there. We'll be talking about that. Uh, we've got to get into Donald Trump's victory lap. He he feels vindicated. I mean, sure, uh, Comey testified for three hours about him, basically saying— You're one, a liar. You're a liar. And one of the problems is I I, I was worried about it because the guy you can't trust. But— President Trump feels vindicated. On one aspect. Yeah. That's what they're pointing at. Well, yeah, the one aspect that he's not under investigation. That a couple months ago he said at this point you're not under investigation. See? 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 But then they pointed out that probably because he was so interested in that fact, he might be under investigation now. Well, yeah. And, and, and yeah, the mere fact that he (laughs) pushed so hard made him a bigger, you know— a, like, a bigger target. Why is for he so interested in that? Hmm. Also, uh, an interesting little thing. Uh, still, Loretta Lynch came out in the discussion. Yes, yeah, she did not have a good day. That didn't look good for her, or even I guess President Obama's. Uh, what do they call it? Attorney General. Right. Um, another one that another I guess I don't know. I don't know what you'd call it. A curveball of the whole um, investigation is. Or is that he himself, James Comey himself, leaked information? And he had to – he leaked his notes. It was unclassified notes. Well, but they were private conversations as every, well. Every, everything saying, else that's been leaked has been like private, classified. These are his personal notes that are – he wrote, as he said, in an unclassified way. Except of a private conversation with the president of the United States. That's that's Trump's attorney's argument is that right. now all of a sudden – But that doesn't mean it's classified. So. Well, but leaked nonetheless. He's making an argument about something that's not illegal. But we're seeing one of the largest – one of the highest, most important positions in our intelligence world leaked to the press. As I saw a guy on one of the cable channels last night say, he goes, if that's the case, then every single person's memoir is a leak. Right. If you're in office and you write a memoir of what you did in office, well, here's remember, a conversation. Very few people delete. write a memoir when they're in office. Right. What well, they they keep notes they and when they're... they they're out of office, like Comey exactly. is. Exactly. So I mean, I understand what they're saying, but That's... there's two different sides here. Well, and I, what I think is super cool is we've now had two or three stories recently of people leaking and getting caught. Yes. Leaking, and so 
I think that's what they need to do is take everybody that leaks that they can catch and just put them out there for everyone to see. It helps when the uh, media organization basically outs the person that did it. Exactly. Makes that it really easy. It makes it really easy. We appreciate the media for yeah, their, thanks, guys. their assistance there. Um, I mean, they used to protect their sources. Now they yeah, just throw them out there. Um, Interesting uh, stuff with all of that. We'll, we'll get more into uh, some of the headlines as well. Plus, um, just some empty news throughout the show. The news that you didn't even know you needed to know, but it's it's there and we want to share it with you. Yes. And later. Yeah? How? I found an article very interesting about the people who rate our movies. Yeah, who are those people? There are 11 people who sit on a panel who watch every movie. And we don't even know who they are? No, but there's some job requirements, some interesting thoughts they have, what they eat are as they, they watch certain types they... of movies. Oh, well, they, they they pick specific people. We'll talk about okay. it. It's just interesting. Because it's a big deal because all of a sudden you hear this movie's a must-see movie or whatever. I mean, yeah. you mean like grade it like if it's an R, a PG? A G, R, PG. So, oh, interesting. And then they, they, I've never understood they get complaints and they can tell from certain parts of the country, here's what people in those parts of the country are more concerned about than Good. others. And Good. It's kind of, yeah. Okay, that'll be exciting. So that's straight ahead. Uh, but first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else do we need to make sure we know? We're talking about leakers there. Prosecutors in Georgia are alleging that reality winner, she's our latest leaker. Yes. A government contractor accused of leaking a top secret NSA document to reporters wrote in a notebook that she wanted to, quote, burn the White House down. Oh, boy. According to prosecutors, Winner also wrote down the names of Taliban and al-Qaeda officials, including Osama bin Laden. Uh, Winner pled uh, pled not guilty and was uh, denied bail by the judge. Assistant U.S. Attorney Jennifer Solari said Winner was underwhelmed with what WikiLeaks had to offer, adding she couldn't understand why this document, the one that she leaked, had not been presented to the media already. So wow. she decided to jump out and do that, except she did it in a goofy way. And well, the media that she was working with. She's a winner. So two U.S. citizens are charged with scouting possible targets in New York and elsewhere for terrorist attacks by the Iranian-linked terrorist group Hezbollah, according to court documents made public on Thursday. The two men, one from New York, the other from Dearborn, Michigan, were arrested last week on weapons-related charges and multiple counts of providing material support for terrorist organizations and receiving military training from a terrorist organization, according to the documents, which were uh, unsealed in New York. The FBI said in exchange... Oh, wait. The FBI said in charging documents that no specific plot was underway, but that the two men had conducted extensive pre-operational surveillance to assess security vulnerabilities at the U.S. and Israeli embassies in Panama, Mm. as well as potential military and intelligence targets in New York. Both men are naturalized U.S. citizens, appeared in court in the past week, and could face life in prison if convicted. Wow. So... Pretty intense. Catch them before something happens. That's yeah. probably the best way. Two chimpanzees that were caged at a trailer lot and at a primate sanctuary don't have the legal rights of people in New York, an uh, appeals yeah. court said on Thursday. <laughs> Non-human rights project attorney Stephen Wise had argued that the appeals court in March that adult male chimps Tommy and Kiko could be uh, granted a writ of a habeas corpus, which for people relates to whether someone is being unlawfully detained or imprisoned. 
and should be taken to see a judge. Chimpanzees, which can walk upright and use sticks and stones to, as tools to help gather food, are considered to be the closest living relatives to humans. Some have been taught to speak simple human uh, sign language, but the state Supreme Court Appellate Division, in a ruling that affirmed a lower court's decision, said that there were no legal precedent for chimpanzees being considered people, and their cognitive capabilities didn't mean that they could be held accountable for their actions. Okay. This is public notice. Wow. Okay. So we got that settled. They're not people. Uh, let's. To the court. Let's. Can I just throw a couple more out there? Yeah, go ahead. Dogs are not people. Okay. Okay. Nor are your cats. Oh, pet owners may, may uh, question you. Boa constrictors, not people. Okay. All right. Uh, iguana, mm. not people. Boy, do we have to like go through the whole list? We could try if there's a, a court case that can be made. Wow. And finally, Ross Edgley. He's a fitness guru. Did you know he was a fitness guru, Ross Edgley? No, no. He's also an endurance athlete who made his name for himself by completing a series of mad endurance challenges. He took part in the world's longest rope climb. He ran 30 marathons in 30 days. He completed a triathlon with a tree trunk strapped to his back. He's now back with an even more ridiculous charity fundraising project. He'll be swimming an ultra marathon, 100 kilometers around the world, all while dragging a 100-pound tree on his back. <laughs> He's calling it strongman swimming. Boy. He'll be coached by professional swimmers while competing in a number of mid-distance challenges before ending the year by attempting an island-to-island crossing in the Caribbean that has never been attempted before. With a log on his back? Yeah. He goes, I want to challenge what sports science believes a human body is capable of. So... What what's it like to train for a marathon swimming across shark infested waters? He goes the drag of the log and the lack of swimming efficiency means I'll burn calories at a far greater rate than swimming normally. As I prepare for the final swim, I need to be completing fifteen hour swimming sessions with a tree as a standard, all to build whale like endurance, strength, and stamina. Wow. Whale like. That's like a he's a real tree hugger. <laughs> well, you know, it seems it like uh, I think I figured out what he's trying to do. Um, uh, if you're going to swim across shark-infested waters, yes. wouldn't you want a log to be able to pop up on and sit on well, every it, time the sharks come around? It's strapped to his back. Or is it? Or does, or does he just well, have to roll? He just rolls on his back and he's back. He's out of the water. It's brilliant. Hmm. It's a ploy. See, he thinks he's tell, he's making you think this is difficult, but it's really to save his hide from sharks. Okay. You just roll on your back. Right. And you're on top of the – then you dry out, get some sun. When you want to cool down, you get back – you just roll back on your belly. Man, did you not think this through? No. I was just reading the story like this. The guy's going to drag a tree through the Caribbean. Well, and through the rest – and like go running with a tree on your back? I mean this yeah. is it's yeah. a lot of love. But... Seems like a lot of effort. Yeah. And the payoff is, look, I did it. Look, I have a – by my coaching office, I have a fitness center yeah. that – well, what do they call it? It's like a military fitness center. Like a boot camp a or boot something? Camp. Yeah. I've never seen more miserable-looking humans yeah. than running out of this <laughs> boot camp. It's about the end, not during. Yeah. People like the feeling when they've accomplished something. So at the end, they're like, oh, wow, I did it. And it's one of these places where they're like, you can work out with anything. Yeah. Because people will run by with like a big water jug and – Anything that looks like it's heavy, like a chair, they'll be running with a chair. Yeah, we looks did, like a bunch of people are like robbing, looting an office next to mine. The place where I work out, we did one. They they had us move the gym. Now oh. the gym wasn't moving. 
It's just they have – it was a Saturday and they had two classes. So the first class picked up all the medicine balls and the barbells and the dumbbells and the weights, the free weights and stuff. And we ran them to the bottom of the street. And then we ran them back up and set them out in the parking lot. The next class came in and took them from the parking lot down to the end of the street and then back to the building and put them back where they were supposed to be. Wow. And they called it the move the gym workout. Yeah, they were setting you like, up to you eventually were, move the gym. I'm like, you were just dusting. That's what yeah, that was. You that, needed us to move everything so you could dust underneath it. That's a – they're pretty smart. Now, if they were actually moving, which they did a few years later, why wouldn't you just do that workout? No, they no. asked for people to bring their trucks. Oh, they did. And I'm like, what do you – have everyone just move the gym. Yeah. Call it a workout, but they didn't do that. You could charge people. Yeah. And, you, I mean, running with a – like a four-foot barbell mm-hmm. hanging off. It's really difficult to Would do Would you that. rather run with a barbell or a tree on your back? I mean, it seems like the tree's more connected to nature, more Yeah, I'd probably do the barbell because it only weighs like 40 pounds versus the tree, which was 100 yeah. pounds. I'd probably just run with a sapling or something. Yeah, or maybe just run and forget about moving equipment as you do it. That's a great I'm point. I'm going to stay home while y'all are doing any of that. Yeah, I don't get this whole exercise thing. Yeah. I mean, just get a farm. Just go work in the yard. You could, except I don't want to farm. Yeah. You'd rather go move some gym. Yeah, I'll just move a gym occasionally. What'd you do today? I moved a gym. I moved a gym. Wow. Was it your gym? Nah. Move someone else's gym. <laughs> hey, uh, interesting news about happiness. Apparently in the summer, workers, you won't believe this, workers tend to slack off more in the summer. No. Yeah. Really? Totally. And they actually end up becoming happier and more productive. Because they're slacking off. Mm-hmm. Hmm. They call it the happy paradox of summer slacking. This is an article in Inc. Magazine um, by Jessica Stillman, and she talks about the fact that uh, really the idea is you need to, according to the experts, slack off during summer, and it makes you happier. But it also, according to the research where they had longitudinal data sets and numerous studies have established that there's an association with lower stress and lower productivity and lower job satisfaction when everyone's working hard in the winter. Hmm. So the happiness then, the, the argument is, slack off in the summer. It'll increase your productivity. It'll increase your happiness. And in the end, you'll be happier about your job. So when your boss is like, hey, why aren't you working? You say, I'm trying to balance efficiency over time. In the winter, I was highly productive and unhappy. Now I will go for low, low, high productivity and happiness, but not work half as much. Wow. It's a pretty cool model. Do you think that would work? Sure. You tell your boss all this? Or is it just sort of you confuse him and he just walks away? What you do is you just wait for your boss to leave. Yeah, and then, and then you, you slack. slack off. <laughs> I mean, you don't have I mean, to talk to him. This is brain surgery. <laughs> when the boss is away, you're going to slack all day. That's funny. That's what mama taught me. When the boss is away, so people are happier kick. when they slack off. Uh, when you when you actually kind of take a break and and have a more relaxed day. So yeah. in the winter time, we don't take breaks. Apparently not. Why? Well, I think we're all in this weird state of numbness. You're just kind of depressed because it's yeah colder outside. So. Yeah. Hmm. The funny thing about working at a university is it seems like the students keep us. Not that not slacking, but they they have quarters. They they kind of they have times where they're out of control, busy. Yeah, and then you just don't see them again. Right. Even though they're supposed to be working. Yes. 
Like lately, I haven't seen hardly any students around here. I was I was questioning if a couple actually still worked here. I, I know. Wasn't Yesterday, aware. it felt like uh, seriously. I thought we had a moment of reverence here. Yeah, because there wasn't anyone around. Hmm. So of course, I went in my office and took a nap. Well, who's going to stop you? I know. What are they going to do? Yeah, just trying to be productive. It's from Harvard, folks. Harvard even said it. Oh, fun. Okay, we're going to uh, get the party started, and when we come back, we're talking solar wind and uh, try to understand what's really going on with the grid. If you've ever wondered, how are they going to keep the lights on when it's nighttime and there's no solar? Well, we'll teach you. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you understand the environment. Welcome back, friends. You know, there's been concern about the environment, a lot of talk about the Paris Agreement lately. And so we wanted to we wanted to bring in somebody that can walk us through kind of the, the energy plans, the reserves we have, the uh, electric grid that we use, and try to understand it. We found a wonderful article, Are Solar, Wind, and... Um, are solar and wind really killing coal, nuclear, and grid reliability? As we invest more in solar paneling and as we invest more in um, wind, does it actually put us at risk? Because these aren't seemingly uh, a kind of a constant sustainable source of energy uh, 24-7, right? One that we could just immediately flip on and, and pull from the grid. If you don't have wind, how do you get power. Is it making us weaker or is it making us stronger? So who better to help us than the author of that article, Joshua D. Rhodes. Joshua is um, uh, has a, holds a PhD in civil engineering from the University of Texas at Austin and is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Weber Energy, or the, yeah, the, we- the Weber, I think, Energy Group and the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. Joshua, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Is it Weber or Weber? It's Weber. Weber Energy Group. Yeah, great. Good to have you here, Josh. This is, um, I think, what I wanted to do with you is just have you give us kind of an energy 101. Um, Okay. Because it it really is, it's kind of confusing. A lot of us don't understand. We kind of get coal because you throw coal in the burners and you create energy or whatever, and all of a sudden you can always turn the grid on and you always have electricity. But help mm-hmm. us understand the grid. How does it all work? And uh, I mean, generally speaking, and what about things like uh, solar and wind? And how do they add to, or are they making us making it a little riskier for us? Sure. So the grid is actually a very impressive, massive machine. I mean, it, if you really think about it, it's kind of, it's the biggest machine we actually have, mm. and. Since there's essentially no storage in the grid, I mean, people talk about battery storage and all this kind of thing, but compared to how much, you know, power we're using, there's not much. So anytime, you know, you flip on a light switch or use a little more electricity, some power plant somewhere has to be generating that that electricity. So it's all this very fine balance. It's this massive machine running in fine balance. And, you know, like you said, yeah, so, you know, with something like uh, coal or natural gas, you can... You can you know, ramp up the fuel and, and produce more. But the thing about it is, is like I said, that you know, a power plant has to speed up and someone flips on the light switch, but there's also people turning off light switches. And so there's, there's this kind of delicate balancing that, um, that has to be done on the grid. But 
we've kind of figured out how to do that with intermittent renewables. Um, we, we were really scared about it at first. There were a lot of people who said that the grid was going to come crashing down, but it, it hasn't so far. Yeah, so far. So, I mean, and, and we call the renewable, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, basically it's a free, well, once you've paid for the, the equipment, right, it's, it, it delivers, it delivers um, the fuel free. That's right. So, you know, 99% of your costs for solar and wind are getting your concrete still and silicon in the ground. And then after that, the wind and uh, sunlight are free. And so investors kind of like that because it's very, um, it's very certain what the costs are going to be going forward. And we know how long these, you know, the solar panels will produce. And we know how often, with, it, with really good fidelity now, you know, how, how often the, uh, um, the wind turbines are going to spin. And so we kind, of, we kind of know how much energy they're going to produce over their lifetime. And we know exactly how much it costs to build them today. And so it's kind of a good bet. Um, if you're looking to develop projects versus you don't know what the price of natural gas is going to do. It's fluctuated significantly in the past decade. Right. Um, as well as coal. And natural gas is, I guess, uh, it's, it's more like coal, right? It's, it's kind of a more of a constant energy source. It's a hydrocarbon, yeah. And we, we get it out of the ground and we put it in pipelines and send it to power plants. And so we can, we can dial those up and dial those down um, at will, like you said. And I guess the dilemma is, though, um, so the, the big fear was all of these solar and wind, they're not going to be sustainable enough, but we're investing a lot of money. President Obama was, was you know, incentivizing a lot of growth there and a lot of mm-hmm. – and so what your, your basic hypothesis or the, the, your basic theory in your article is – or your uh, hypothesis was um, are solar and wind really killing coal, nuclear, and grid? And your, your basic result was no. It's enhancing it. Right. So one of the things we learned in ERCOT, which is the grid that operates most of Texas, is um, as we've gone to getting 15% of our total energy from wind, grid reliability actually went up. And the reason for that is not based on the wind, really. It's because we refigured how we do the markets, and we do the markets more efficiently. And so reliability has actually and has, has gone up if you measure how many things that we call ancillary services or um, power plants we kind of have in reserve just in case. We actually have less of those now in some, in some respects, uh, even as wind has, has gone up. And, and one of the reasons because of that is, you know, a lot of people were scared that, well, the wind will die off and, and the sun will die off. But, but the thing is, is if you spread solar and wind over enough geographic um, area, and Texas is a pretty big state, yeah. if you spread that out over a large area, it's not very likely that the wind is going to die in the whole state all at once. Hmm. It may die in some places, and it may be ramping up in other places. And so it, it's, it's, we've never really lost all of our wind at once. Um, and the same thing with solar. If, you know, cloud rolls over, it, it's, it's very – I don't know if I've ever seen the entire state covered in clouds before. So right. somewhere, somewhere is getting sun. You know, so it doesn't all die at the same time. Well, and the, the I guess the 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 naive of us are like, well, yeah, but Josh, every night, every night, you're not going to get <laughs> solar. So, but the, I guess the point of that's this true. whole thing, and that's what you're saying, though, is you as as you've been trying to integrate these other sources of energy into the into the grid, you actually are becoming more efficient at balancing them because each one of them costs so much, and coal, although it's constant, um, costs more. 
than mm-hmm. uh, solar and wind, right? So you can you can sell solar and wind energy and, and use it to bring down the overall cost of all energy by selling that energy in the day and then at night using the coal. Right. Yeah, the coal and natural gas. I mean, one of the one of the things that um that really you know since when when power plants like there's this whole market that most people don't that don't really pay attention to and probably don't really need to, but there's a whole market on the wholesale electricity market where all these power plants are bidding in. I will produce this much energy for this price, and then there's a grid operator that lines them up from lowest cost to highest cost, and the low one low cost ones get um, are told to turn on first, and the highest ones um, are likely not to be to be turned on, and so. Renewables have a very low marginal cost, and so they're actually driving down the overall um, wholesale market price for electricity. And we've actually seen that um, that along with having cheap natural gas, those price savings being being pushed along down to consumers, which hmm. is a good thing. Yeah, and I guess too we're we're seeing that the use of uh, electricity, the demand for electricity. Is I guess it's it's kind of leveling out. It, it's not on this steep incline. Is that right? Yeah, that that is another thing. That's um, it's kind of new territory for us. We've always seen a whole bunch of you know energy growth, and so we're kind of entering a new territory where we have either kind of just very slight growth or kind of flatline in some areas, even um, declining growth, uh, or negative growth, or you know energy use going going down. And a lot of that has come from efficiency. Um, after after, the, um, after the, uh, the recession back in 08, 09, we invested a lot in efficiency, and we're seeing some of that pay off right now with the fact that we're actually, um, as our GDP is increasing and our growth is increasing, it's not necessarily tied to energy use like it was before. So we used to, they used to be what we call coupled, you know, we'd, we'd use more energy to produce more GDP and more wealth for the country, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. It's, it's but it's kind of new territory, so it's kind of exciting slash you know unnerving. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I guess it would be, and and we've had uh, we've had two or three like coal manufa or coal plant uh, pr- energy providers on the show, and it's really mm-hmm. interesting too how. They're, they they understand coal is on its way out. I mean, they, they understand yeah. its its days are numbered, but um, and so even they are starting to invest in these other forms of of energy and some of the renewables. I guess um, they're still the Achilles' heel. It seems like of the energy world is just the storage. Mm-hmm. We just we still can't store energy. It always has mm-hmm. to be pretty much on demand, right? Yeah, I mean you can. You can think about energy storage in terms of fuels, like, you know, we, we store energy in coal or natural gas and the chemical bonds that, that make those up when we, you know, burn them, that, you know, produces the electricity through the plant. So you can think of that as storage, um, depending on how you define it. But electrochemical storage or, you know, battery storage, the way most people think about it, that, um, that's still a, a relatively new field, but um, they're making some pretty good advances in it. I mean... Tesla's driving down the cost of, of batteries. Panasonic's driving down the cost of batteries. A whole bunch of hmm. um, those are going after it. I mean, they, I, I think they see that because, you know, if we can get the cost of batteries down and we can store electricity that essentially costs nothing to produce, I mean, prices could, could, would come down even further. Wow. Do you see that in the future? Do you see eventually that we would be able to store days' worth of 
energy? I think so. I, I think I think we'll get there. I mean, I think it'll be a little bit harder than driving down the cost. Like as how it won't come down as fast as maybe solar has. Solar has come down ridiculously fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I think we'll get there. I really do. There's a lot of really smart people working on it, and um, I think we'll get there. Is and I mean, I guess another issue behind all of this that seems to cause the fear is the fact that there's jobs attached to all of this, right? So as mm-hmm. as coal. Uh, as an energy source and even nuclear, which is just really difficult to do to build the the places and the history right. of nuclear and the fear of nuclear um, is uh, there's jobs associated. And I, I guess as we as we retool, we also have to retool our workers is as coal goes away. um what do we do with the jobs? Where, where do we take? Because I mean, the coal jobs are in coal mines in you know disparate places across the country. How do we how do we keep those people employed? For sure, and that's a that's a very valid concern. I mean, it's it's really hard on those that you know end up losing their jobs for sure. Um, you know, the jobs in the coal industry, however, they're being lost more to automation than anything. I mean, if you see some of these massive machines that they use to um, to extract coal, particularly up in the Powder River Basin up in Wyoming, I mean, they're multi-stories high. They're massive machines, and they're run by one person. I mean, we don't we don't you don't see people with you know pickaxes anymore in in mines like pulling coal and putting them on uh, rail cars like we saw in the like we you know think about from the movies. Like that's just not how we do it yeah. anymore. It's massive automation, and so however. The bright side of that equation is, though, is that is that solar and wind are huge job creators. I mean, they're massive job creators because you. It's. I think it's going to be really hard to automate those jobs because you know we. It, it's not something that you can just you know. Um, a machine can come through and build you know these wind turbines. It takes multiple crews of folks to to be out there doing that and also climbing the towers to maintain them. There's moving parts up there. Things are going to break just as they do. And so um, I actually saw a study that said one of the big, the highest fastest growing jobs in the next 10 years is going to be wind turbine manufacturing. It's going to be wind turbine maintenance. Oh, I bet. And I, so you just got to get over your fear of heights. That's a big deal. Well, and it, you know what yeah. is fun about your article, um, and then we'll take a break, is uh, I, you do. You drive through Texas and you think, man, there's just a lot of empty space here. Um, mm-hmm. Boy, you could do a lot with this. And when you think about putting farms out there, wind turbine farms or um, or solar panel farms or whatever we call them, I mean, there really is – there's plenty of space in this country to generate. And I, I could even see in the Midwest – they might love oh, yeah. uh, putting some some solar farms out on where they're losing the ability to farm other things. So I guess in the end, there are some answers. We'll come back more with Dr. Joshua Rhodes um, and his work on solar and wind. And really, it's it's not it's not killing coal and nuclear, and it's not making the grid more unreliable. In fact, in the end, it may be bringing down costs. But we do. We have to retool. We have to rethink it, uh, helping us understand our energy system. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking uh, solar and wind. Uh, is it really killing coal and nuclear energy? And what about grid reliability? How do you have a constant, sustainable grid when you have certain fuels uh, or certain sources of energy that aren't constant? Do you just flip them on and off? How does all of that work? Well, walking us through some of the ins and outs of our energy world is Joshua D. Rhodes, who holds a Ph.D. in civil engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. He's also doing postdoctoral work in the Weber Energy Group and the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. Joshua, thank you again for being with us. Thank you for having me. One interesting little thing that uh, that I learned from your article um, is when we when we think of uh, Rick Perry, who ran for president, past governor of Texas, uh, and then all of a sudden President Trump is putting him in as the energy secretary. I think a lot of people thought that that was just a political appointment, just, you know, Rick, what does Rick Perry really know about energy? And come to find out, uh, apparently quite a lot, because Texas is a major leader in, in energy. They're, they're on the cutting edge of energy uh, use and um, grid use. And so maybe tell us a little bit about what uh, – why Texas is ahead and, and you know, uh, what really makes Rick Perry a little bit better than most people might think of this. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Texas is a big energy state from oil and gas to, to wind power. I mean, we kicked off the, uh, you know, domestic oil production um, and led us through World War II with oil production and uh, oil and natural gas, fracking, all this stuff. I and mean, we are a big energy state. But we've also got some really good wind resources and some really good solar resources. In fact, we have uh, last year we generated 15% of our energy um, from wind power. Wow. We have 20% of our capacity um, from wind power. And, uh, yeah, so when Rick Perry actually, when he was governor, he, he actually oversaw a massive uh, transmission line investment um, out to West Texas because West Texas is actually where we have our best wind and solar resources. Hmm. So we built what we call the Crez lines, um, and these these lines have been these massive transmission investment projects have been responsible for allowing us to build and convey lo- all that wind energy <clears throat> from West Texas to the load centers, which are kind of more in the central and eastern part of the state. Hmm. So he was, you know, he I, I think he he realized that that was a good investment. Um, Definitely at the time when natural gas was really high, and uh, yeah, I mean, he, I, I think he, uh, I think he could, I think he saw it as a good investment. Is it? Do, do you sense? Um, I mean, it seems like this could be a really smart thing for states to be doing to become, you know, major generators in solar and wind. Mm-hmm. Because I, I mean, again, it gives there's certain states that need a ton of energy and don't have the benefits of the West and the Midwest and Texas. Um, is there a day you think that states will be even bigger brokers of gas and energy or not gas, but of energy, or are they already doing that? So, you know, energy sometimes crosses state lines already. And so it's not, Texas is a little bit of a, uh, of an anomaly in the fact that our, our electricity grid is wholly contained within the state. Hmm. And so it's not subject to interstate commerce. But the rest of the country, and basically, if you if you send a line straight up through you know Oklahoma up to the through the Dakotas, and you go west, you get what we call the Western Interconnection or WEC. 
Um, and then if you go east, you get the eastern interconnection. And then there's multiple um, groups within those that um, kind of balance the grid in those in those regions. And so power already flows across state lines. Some states are already net producers. Um, some are are net importers of energy. It kind of depends on what your you know what your resource availability is um, already. But building out a stronger transmission network, allowing that power to flow further, and allowing more of that power to flow further, um, kind of like what we talked about, and kind of what the Cres lines have done with uh, in Texas is allow a whole lot more really cheap electricity to be produced. You know, in areas like the middle of the country where the wind blows really strong, mm. or the um, the southwest where the sun shines really uh, really bright a lot of the year, you know, they can allow those states to then export that electricity, and you're creating those jobs. You know, locally. totally. I just saw I just saw a, a something in the, um, an article in the New York Times that um this is you know some of the best wind and solar resources are actually in some of the um, some of the reddest states, which you think about in the middle of the country mm-hmm. there. Um, and kind of the yeah, and it seems like that would make you literally power brokers. I mean, if it almost reminds me of water in the West back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever had the water and the water rights owned the West. Who it seems right. like going forward, some of these states that uh, all they've had maybe historically was agricultural, they might be able to hook into this creation of energy uh, and become power brokers. Yeah, and exactly. And you don't even have to give up the former. I mean, right, right. With a, a, a wind farm, you know, while it while it does take up a lot of space, the actual footprint is really small. And so, I mean, you can still farm, run cattle, do a whole bunch of things um, under a wind farm. And so, you know, there are some there are some ranchers who, you know, they really really love wind power because now they have an extra uh, income stream that they really just don't have to do anything for. They can mm. still run their cattle and do everything else. When you look at it, um, would it, is this a better thing for government to be involved in, or or should they just kind of keep more of a regulation role and let private enterprise take over? I mean, I, we see the development of power plants and all that kind of is, is, is in the private sector. And so, I mean, I, I do think that's... Um, where it could stay, where it should stay. Um, if I, I think one thing that the government could do, and I recently um, wrote an op-ed about this, is um, you know if the government were to do something like put a price on carbon or something like that, that I think it would stimulate a lot more of this renewable energy development, um, particularly you know in in more remote rural areas. Hmm. Is it? Just maybe give us the quick oversight on why um, why nuclear hasn't taken off more. Is it just we're all afraid of it? It's just such a gnarly engine that it's dangerous. Um, or what? what is it that – because it is one that you can just turn on at will and keep mm-hmm. it running. And it, it has a lot of power to, to impact a lot of lives. Yeah. I mean one of the – you know, one of the issues that uh, that people kind of float around a whole bunch is that nuclear can't uh, what we call ramp or move up and down to respond to demand. Um, but that's more of a regulatory thing. In France, they were there like 70% nuclear power. You know, they, they turn the, the nuclear power up and down all the time to respond to demand. And so it's not that we can't physically do it. It's just that um, our regulations uh, and the designs we won't, uh, that we have won't 
allow for it. Hmm. And people are scared of nuclear. It's, um, you know, if, a, if, if, you know, God forbid, a, an explosion were to happen in a coal plant or something like that, it may, it may hurt some folks locally, but it's not going to spread very far. But if, a, if, a, if something happens in a nuclear plant, then um, there, there are consequences kind of further away, and so people are um, afraid of it. One of the things is when we started building nuclear plants, we kind of had the mindset of, of other types of power plants, like, like coal. Mm. And so we had operators there whose job was to, um, if something went wrong, was to shut it down. We needed a different mindset, and so now the way we build nuclear is the, the operators are there to keep things going. So if something, if an operator were to just, if all the folks were to just walk away from a from a modern nuclear power plant, it would automatic, it would start to shut itself down. Hmm. The plant is always trying to turn itself off, and the operator is there to just say, no, don't turn off. For the oh, interesting. Long. It's just a different mindset and a different way of yeah. thinking about it, but it um. But it, but it helps out. But one of the problems with nuclear, it's, it's, we just haven't built any in so long that we don't have the manufacturing capability to back it up. Wow. So um, some, of these, some of these parts are just are massive. The, the containment domes on top of the reactor, uh, the containment um, lids on top of the reactor, you, know, you have to have an entire industry to kind of back those up, to manufacture, to maintain, and all that. And we just, since we really haven't built any, since the 70s or so, we just don't have that manufacturing capability anymore, and so things are expensive. Since they're expensive, we don't build them. Since mm. we don't build them, we don't have the manufacturing capability, yeah. so forth and so on. I mean, it's just, you know, keeps going. I think it would take a massive, coordinated effort to decide that we wanted to, to build a lot of nuclear power before to have the guarantees in place for folks to invest in that manufacturing chain needed to support it. So its days are numbered. Sounds like. You know, there's some advancements in what we call modular nuclear reactors, which are smaller reactors that can be built in factories, and so you don't have to build the parts um, and ship them to a location. Mm. So we used to build nuclear really big, uh, really big capacities, gigawatts or more, um, which, is a, which is a very large power plant. Um, but if, we're both, we, if we build these smaller reactors... They can be wholly built in factories, and there are companies that um, are going through the process of trying to get their designs licensed. Oh, interesting! Um, right now, Th- then yeah. you go put 30, 30 of the smaller ones together, and you have some mega plant. Yeah, or you kind of spread them out a little bit. And again, yeah. these are all again always trying to shut themselves down. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and then you're just there to to say on. <laughs> so in, when you think about this, as we wrap it up, um, mm-hmm. we hear a lot about the Paris Agreement. We've pulled out of the Paris Agreement and, you know, which is now supposedly telling the world how little we care about the environment. Um, mm-hmm. But w- what do you see going forward that um, are we are we going to be energy energy, in, uh, energy independent? Are we going to do you think seriously incorporate solar and wind to the point that uh, the costs are going to drop? What do you? How do you see the future going? I mean, we are we're a nation blessed to be flush with energy resources. You know, we started exporting oil. We started exporting natural gas. Where before we were um, importing them, or we're still importing them, just given the way some of our refineries are made up. But I don't see anything stopping our development of renewable energy resources. I mean, they're like solar and wind. They're just, they're just so cheap. The prices have come down so far 
that when you pencil it out on paper, they just they tend to make more sense than than other technologies. And as we as you know, cars electrify and things like you know things like that. That that adds a bunch of uh, battery storage to the grid. It's mobile battery storage, but it's there. Yeah. And so I I think you know through our history we've gone from you know wood whale oil to wood to kerosene to coal to natural gas. We we've been decarbonizing and get, and going after more energy um, dense um, uh, fuels. For as long as we've, uh, for as long as the industrial revolution has been around, so I mean, this is this is a trend that has been going around for a long time, and this is kind of the the next um, the next step in that trend, I believe, to electrify everything and um, and to go after uh, sources that are cleaner. People are kind of demanding it; they're wanting it. You know, um, uh, forecasts are always off because they're not taking into account how much you know firms are saying, like uh, businesses are saying, we want renewable energy. People are saying we want renewable energy. We want to be cleaner. Um, and so there's there's a it's not just economics driving this, and I don't see anything stopping it at this point. Yeah, that's great, great news. Well, uh, Joshua D. Rhodes, we appreciate you and your great work uh, there as a research fellow in the Weber Energy Group and the Energy Institute at the University of Texas uh, of Austin. Keep up the great work, and we will continue learning. It's really good news. I mean, we live in a very rich country. Abundant in energy, um, and now maybe what we do is we just keep dialing it in until we get that cleaner source. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and lead healthier lives. We'll be right back. So if you go to a movie, you know, you got to decide, is it, are we going to go to a PG, PG PG-13, R-rated movie? Somebody's making these decisions, and Terry's here today to talk about who are these people. Now, it's the Motion Picture Association of America. Yeah, MPAA. The MPAA, you'll see that around, and that's who, who the rating system is. They have a group of people who actually sit and watch every movie. Wow. And then judge what it should be rated. Yeah, Jeff Simpson would love that. The Wall Street Journal had this article, the, uh, the 11 people who watch every movie, especially the gross bits. Really? They have to see it, yeah. You have to watch everything, and then the the things that you would think are the most controversial parts are the parts they're having to watch three, four times to discuss, does it reach a certain threshold? Yes, okay. Right? So, I mean, do you want to see all this stuff all the time? That's oh, kind of some questions you have right. to say. But there's 11 people. They serve as raiders, they call them. So they went so far as to give, give them, them a highly technical Raiders. Land. In years past, it was the uh, proliferation of blood and gore and apop- apocalyptic blow-up spectacles, like mm-hmm. when they level a city. Yeah. Uh, today's surveys show that parents are less sensitive to violence, but are increasingly concerned about smoking and bullying. Really? So violence, no yeah, big deal. You can behead somebody, but, but do not that, bully them. If that guy was smoking, we're not going to have that on, you know, and so that's what parents are concerned about. Yeah. So the stakes are so high, in fact, they often keep their deliberations secret. Wow. Now, if you watch uh, a movie that comes to mind, because, you know, it's me, Batman v Superman that came out last year, uh-huh. the rating on that didn't come out till right before it was released because they were trying to not get the R rating. Yeah, yeah. Right? So they were trying to, okay, we'll take this out. Here's some more clips. What if we do this with this clip? And they they were adjusting the movie to get it a PG-13 rating. 
Well, and then you get the DVD and you get the full blown version. But is that what they want? Is the PG thirteen rating? Because it seems like Hollywood produces a ton of R. PG thirteen makes the most movies, okay. makes, makes the most, most money, money. because okay, you get the it. biggest audience. Yeah, sure. R all of a sudden restricts right. you to who can see it. Okay. Uh, at times, the Raiders say it's a difficult job to leave behind the office. He was nothing like picking up the kid at preschool after you watch some horror movie where some just horrible things have just happened. Okay. All right, and you show up and oh, there's a little kindergartner or something, and you're like, oh. Darn it. I just watched this for the last hour. On a typical day, they'll watch uh, two to three movies. In 2016, the board rated 605 movies. Wow. They say the team tends to eat potato chips during violent movies, uh, this this Raider added, and chocolate during the, uh, like, romantic movies. They they have snacks. (laughs) They know what what they're eating. Uh, One of the requirements is you must have a kid. Okay, cool. They make sure they have children between the ages of 5 and 15 when they're hired, and unless they're promoted to a senior status, which means like a supervisory position, they must leave the job when their youngsters hit 21. Huh. So you must have a kid. That's cool. And then they have people from Ohio and people from the coast. At one point, they felt like they were too coastal, so they went to the center of the country and tried to bring people in that had those sort of sensibilities. So they're trying to mix the... That mix the deal. They get complaints on a hotline. They say in the South, they're, uh, they despise blasphemy. In the Midwest, they don't like sex. and Especially in PG-13 movies, residents on the coasts are concerned with violence, but they also say the Northeast doesn't seem to care about language at all. Nobody cares. So well, wow. Regional sensibilities. MPAA. There you yeah. go. The people that uh, rate your movies. Well, thanks, Terry. Let's take a break. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy Friday to you. Hope your commute is going well. Hope your, your Friday is going well. You know, it's good. You made it. And, uh... We got a great show for you. We will be talking about when uh, what to do when guilt keeps stopping you from you know saying no. Have you ever just felt like so much guilt that oh fine, I'll just do it? Or have you ever met somebody that tends to guilt you? Just give me a ride to the airport. What? You're too good to give me a ride to the airport? You don't care about your friends? You'd rather that I take an Uber and possibly die? You'll be fine. When guilt keeps you from setting boundaries and saying no, it, it, it starts to make it so you can't even live your own life. You have to do what everyone else wants you to do. And uh, we're going to talk about how to kind of de uh, – how to set boundaries, how to take your life back by uh, understanding how guilt works on you and how others might use guilt to work on you. Interesting topic there. Plus, we're going to get into some empty news uh, there's there's really a lot to cover today, especially because it's Friday, so we tend to have a lot of news stories that uh, that we we don't know what to do with. You know, they're really good, they're important, and they they might even be something that could either make you laugh or could change your life forever. And yet, we haven't even talked about it yet. So we'll talk about it. Uh, a man, for example, receives a ticket after hitting 88 miles an hour in his DeLorean. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Right. 
Big news. Big news. 11-year-old girl hilariously accuses her teacher of war crimes. <laughs> war crimes. For punishing the whole class when one pupil is being naughty. It's against the Geneva Convention. That's a war crime. Yeah. Uh, my children, anytime I joke or tease my child, he now he says it's bullying. Hmm. And I'm like, I don't think you understand bullying. Yeah. So let me now demonstrate bullying. <laughs> you thought that was bullying. You Watch this. <laughs> you don't know bullying. So we'll get to some of those crazy stories straight ahead. Um, plus, just a lot of fun to help you through your Friday and get you ready. One that little ditty for you at the next hour. Um, Jeff Simpson will be holding an entire one of his sh- his shows. Screen cleaning is the is the show that uh, every Friday, our final hour, we dedicate to media, to movies, and Jeff Simpson takes over. So that will be next hour. You're not going to want to miss it because he'll be uh, interviewing one of uh, Studio C's great actors, Matt Meese, will be on the show. And so if you've ever watched BYU Studio C or or seen any viral uh, work from BYU, a bet you bucks Matt Meese had something to do with it. So we'll get to all that straight ahead. But first to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what do we need to be paying attention to? There are more U.S. retailers at risk of declaring bankruptcy now than at the height of the Great Recession. Ratings agency Moody's Investor Service sounded the alarm about the troubled financials in a report released this week. Among the 22 companies Moody's cites, Neiman Marcus Group, Sears Holdings, and others that are facing increased difficulties weathering the shift to online shopping, according to the report. The previous high mark was 19, came in uh, 2009. Even still, uh, Moody says the company on the, the companies on the distress list only represent 16% of all retailers analyzed by Moody's, though the roster could grow in the next 18 months. The majority wow. of retailers remain fundamentally healthy, but you'll start noticing in the news more and more retailers closing. That's scary. Just shutting down Amazon, man. I I saw this morning Macy's is turning more to an online approach to retail than even having brick-and-mortar stores anymore. Wow. So that may be the the case as they're fighting off Amazon. The Food and Drug Administration on Thursday asked a, a drug company to remove its opioid pain medication from the market. The first time the agency has made such a request because of the public health consequences of abuse. The agency concluded after an extensive review that endopharmaceuticals, Opana ER, that the uh, benefits of the drug may no longer outweigh its risks. The company reformulated the drug in 2012 to make it more difficult to snort. Wow. But the FDA said that move actually led to more injections and a major HIV outbreak. <laughs> so now just stop selling it altogether, please. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Man. Like, you have to re- retool your drug so it's not easy to snort. That's, yeah. that's where we're at with pharmaceuticals at the moment. It's so scary. Yeah. Former Minnesota governor and professional wrestler Jesse Ventura. Do you remember him? Yeah. Jesse, the body Jesse, Ventura. the body. Said he hasn't been able to find work since his highly publicized defamation lawsuit against the estate of American sniper author Chris Kyle. So he will work for Russian TV with a new commentary show. Ventura told the Associated Press Thursday that he has personal assurances from Russian President Vladimir Putin that the world, according to Jesse, won't be censored by the government-funded RT network. Ventura, uh, 65, lost his health insurance with the Screen Actors Guild Union last year because he wasn't doing enough work in the industry. RT has provided health insurance that he lost with the Actors Guild 
And he says he he signed a contract last fall for 32 shows. Hasn't filmed an episode yet, but he'll begin in uh, doing that in his home state of Minnesota. The first installment was to air next month or so, but uh, we'll see what happens there. But So Jesse, the former governor of Minnesota plus professional wrestler working for RT. Wow. And Vlad Putin said, go ahead, you can do whatever you want. See, he needed his own little reality star. And finally, an auctioneer in Arizona believes he has bulletproof evidence his team has discovered an original Jackson Pollock painting that has been tucked away in a garage for years. You, Jackson Pollock, are you familiar with that? Uh, not too familiar. Apparently, uh, some people are. 10 okay. to $15 million is what this Holy painting is expected cow. to fetch at auction. Uh, Josh Levine, the owner and founder of the auction group, said that his company stumbled upon the possible valuable painting along with several other paintings from a many notable artists when they were called out to perform an appraisal for an estate sale. One of our appraisals went out to the house and the lad was telling him we found an L.A. Lakers poster that Kobe Bryant has signed. That was like the valuable thing. You know? Huge! And they, they started looking around the room and they started seeing all these paintings and they flipped them around and they're like, wait a second. <laughs> Hold on. One of them was uh, from another uh, painter named Kenneth Nolan. And they believe that one's worth $100,000. Wow. But then they found these other uh, ones that they believe are Jackson Pollock paintings, which are worth 10 to $15 million. So, yeah. You, you so, know, much, so much for Kobe Bryant's signature, right? right. Well, we did that. We did a, a story about a week ago about an art, a piece of art that wasn't a piece of art. Somebody left something in the in the art museum do you remember oh it was the pineapple yeah they left a pineapple in the art museum and everybody thought it was a piece of art like wow look at that it's abstract it's really a commentary on the 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 what the uh depressed level of existence you know whatever term you want to put to it but it's just a pineapple in a glass box (laughs) (laughs) it's but it's so much more than that so um do you remember we uh we we had a guest Talk about the fact that I can't remember. I, I actually don't remember because we read so much. I don't remember if we yeah. have the guest or if we're going to have the guest. But um, if you want to know if something's going to work for you, the best way to know is not trust what you think, but go read the reviews of what people who have purchased the product say about the product. Hmm. So if you want to know if you're going to like something, don't just take your gut on it. Go Read all the reviews of a bunch of people. And so kind of getting into the fact that so many stores are now closing, and a lot of that's because Amazon is online. Apparently, there is this new fun activity, which is going on Amazon, writing a review that is really funny Yeah, of a product. Trying to make it creative. So um, they put out a kind of a best of some of the funniest reviews. One guy bought a, a great big, huge, I think, Panasonic television. And um, here's the review. Uh, he, this is one of the winners of one of the great uh, – of the contest of the best. He said, I had to leave my wife and my kids and sell my soul. This is an actual review for a, a qualified customer that bought the bought the television. I had to leave my wife and my kids and sell my soul to the gods of Zulu Hmm. in order to afford this TV. For years, I prayed that one day I could sell my soul in order to purchase this beautiful machine. I cannot imagine my life without it. I can stare into its pixels like the eyes of a water goddess for days, weeks, months of my life. I would do anything for another one. Uh, Two music computing televisions, uh, tears are streaming down my face just thinking about it. If you think of anyone that is rich 
and has uh, you get a good cut of money on their on their will, find a way to get that money. Music computing is more important than any life, other lives on this earth. I mean, that's kind of scary. Yeah. But that's a really good product. It's it's as if he sold his soul to the gods. Well, you've seen those prices. Oh yeah. Yeah. Really good prices. You can get you can get a TV, just any old TV, or you can get something really nice, but the really nice one you're gonna have to sell an arm or a leg, possibly literally. <laughs> this guy um bought a I guess a hair product that gets rid of hair on your back. So he wrote, my back once looked like I I had glue on my back and then rolled around on a Turkish barber floor. No longer. After bribing the missus with a a takeaway bottle of wine, she's – she has now – and she, she applied it to my back and now it's, uh, it's silk like uh, a silkworm's home. Hmm. Boyfriend pillow. Have you heard of this one? Yes. It's a, it's a pillow that has like a fake arm yeah. and it has a shirt on it and it looks like – so then you can cuddle up into it's, your boyfriend's arm. It's one of arm. these body pillows. Yeah. And, yeah, they, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the review says um, – uh, let me start off by saying that I bought this as an anniversary present for my now ex-girlfriend. The pillow is great, so good, in fact, that my girlfriend left me to start a life with it. She named it Steve. Her Steve now has three children body pillows together and an adorable dog body pillow. That seems odd. The pillow only may look like half man, but it's twice the man I'll ever be. <laughs> Crazy, huh? Yeah, a little strange. But it actually makes it fun. So now as you go review before you make a purchase, you can get a little entertainment as well. Or if you're just looking for actual information, skip all the five-star reviews. Really? Do you like to go to like the lowest reviews? Well, I, I, I try to look at like the threes and fours because mm-hmm. you got people that are like, it was good, but there was a th- problem. And then you got to judge whether that problem was like a manufactured defect, like the whole thing fell apart on me. Yeah. No one's going to build something that, in, that just falls apart unless it's like a fidget spinner. No, a fidget spinner. They're built for sure. to fall apart. Absolutely. But like, I, I look a lot at headphones, Bluetooth headphones. I love the the idea of them. My wife it frustrates her because I have so many of them. But um, you're addicted. Well, I I need one that fits my ear correctly, and then does the. They always have these clips that you clip yeah. onto your collar that you, we've talked yeah. about. Oh, they I don't actually it. work. Right, no. And so I'm trying to see if, the, if anyone's improved upon the design, and they haven't. But just watching the complaints, seeing how you know, people talk about the product, you can make a better judgment, I think, than just reading a five-star, which is obviously from the manufacturer of the right. product who's just posted on there, this is the greatest thing ever, because they're trying to sell you headphones. So I, skip the five stars. And I lose my headphones mm-hmm. because of that clip every other day. I don't know why. Because you, you clip it to your jacket or something yeah. and you whip it and off. And I whip so. it off and then they find it in the parking lot here. Do you like mowing your lawn? Hate it. Hate mowing your lawn. Yeah. Uh, found this one. It, there's a, uh, there was a comic that someone made called Hate Mowing Your Lawn, Good, Don't Do It. <laughs> um, in it, it talked about how mowing your lawn was popularized in the U.S. only after World War II. It's rapid expansion driven by lawn care companies and reliant on Invasive species of grass that suck up nearly 20 trillion gallons of water a year. 50 to 75% of home water use each summer is watering your lawn. Wow. So if you don't mow your lawn, it won't need as much water. 
That's the idea. And it says, while lawns, like any plant life, suck up greenhouse gases, the energy spent on their care wipes out any of those gains. So if you're worried about the environment, or if you're not worried about the environment, this gives you a good excuse. You could say, cutting back on lawn care is one of the easiest ways you can reduce your climate change impact. Ah. So regardless of where you stand on the issue, I think we're all unified on it's a bother to mow your lawn. Right, right. So you can just say you're trying to help the planet by letting your whole yard go to weeds. But then it seems like the city's going to get involved, and then they're going to make you mow your lawn. Well, this doesn't say just let it go to weeds. What it's saying is mow less often. I agree. Right? So every other week, not every single week. But you'd have to tell my neighbors that. Yeah. They don't. They feel like this is a competition. I'm not in the competition. I actually have my children mow the lawn. Huh. Which uh, my, my cost of replacing sprinklers has gone through the roof. Well, they're not as careful. No. They need to go around and make sure all the sprinklers have fallen back into place. But it is making us water less. That's nice. Because we, all we have is a bunch of geysers in our yard. <laughs> sort of like, turn the water off. Well, water hazard. Uh, okay, so when Spencer White's DeLorean hit 88 miles an hour, he didn't go back to the future. So if you buy a DeLorean, you, you know you're thinking back to the future. You gotta, There's no other reason to buy one. And in the movie, uh, when Dr. Emmett Brown's DeLorean time machine would hit 88 miles an hour in the 80, 1985 movie Back to the Future, the flux capacitor would be activated. Mm-hmm. The passenger inside would then travel through time. Well, that didn't happen to Mr. White. Last week, he decided to take his mother on the freeway for the first time. In his 1982 stainless steel DeLorean, shortly after merging onto the Highway 14, he checked the speedometer. He didn't realize how fast he was going until he saw that it read 85 miles an hour. So he thought to myself, let's get it up to 88 and see what happens. Right. That's when the magic happens. I got three more miles per hour to go here. So he picked up his pace. White describes hitting 88 miles per hour for a couple of seconds before seeing a California Highway Patrol officer flashing his lights behind him. Hmm. He asked me how fast I thought I was going. White said the, the chip officer, still smiling, told him that he was going exactly 88 miles an hour. Cop knew what was going on, too. Hey, that's a DeLorean. It's going 88. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> I watched all, the movie, too. And all of us started laughing. And, and then, then he got a ticket. But see, the big ticket. question is, when the cop pulled him over, hmm. what year was it? Did he check? Check the ticket. Yeah. Because it could be any year. It could be. Yeah. And check how old your mom looks. And, well, no, she would have been with you. I know, but she, oh, so she won't age. No, she? she just moves at the current status around in time. Oh, see, I would have taken my mom back a few years so yeah. she'd feel younger, more vibrant. There you go. But not but, back too far. Yeah. But you don't, want to, and you don't want to take her back if she's going to stay older. And that don't, would and ruin don't, her day. Don't meet yourself. Yeah, that's rude. And time will then fold in on itself. It's don't date paradox. your mother. Well, don't, don't, yeah, don't do that. That's weird. That's really weird. And especially weird family stories later in life. Yeah. Do you remember when you dated mom? Yeah. It's weird. Awkward. Okay. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about guilt. And uh, when guilt keeps you from saying no, from setting boundaries, from moving forward, from being healthy, stick with us. Taking on guilt. Up next. You know, beliefs about what it means to be a good person are very powerful. They can keep us from having and maintaining fulfilling relationships with other people. 
what you think about your, you know, being good. Are you a good person for doing this, a bad person for doing this? You know, it generates and, and drives a lot of guilt in our minds and in our lives. And many times this guilt may uh, make it so that we don't set stronger boundaries. We don't know how to say no to people because we want to please them. We want to somehow uh, make them like us more. And this guilt then eventually hurts us and, and makes life a lot harder. So here today to talk about guilt and its impact on all of us is uh, Dr. Eileen Cohen. She's a psychotherapist, a blogger, and an adjunct professor in the Department of Counseling at Barry University. She also has a blog on psychology today where we found the article, When Guilt Keeps You from Setting Boundaries. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. This is, and I, by the way, I, people, you've got a great website, com, with the word doctor spelled out. Talk to us um, about this, Eileen. Is, just first, I guess, explain to us what guilt is. Because, I mean, I think we think we know what it is, but it's, it's kind of, it, it's got deep roots and it hits us in a lot of different ways. Yeah, exactly. It does have deep roots. And I think guilt has been used as a term to really let us know what is right or wrong. It can be very useful, but it can also be detrimental when guilt shows up as really our fear and our anxiety and maybe voices of the past that might not necessarily have really led us in the right direction, but we still hear it as guilt and and something that is supposed to lead us in the the proper direction. And it seems like some people that are around us may know how to use guilt uh, really well and get us to do what they want us to do. Yes, of course. People um, might know us better than we know ourselves, and they know exactly what to say um, to get us to do what they want us to do. So that makes it even harder for someone that might really believe that um, they have to be a good person all the time or they want to please the people in their lives. So those people... They don't only have the voice of guilt within themselves, they hear it from their loved ones or the people they're associated with, with which also then pushes that idea that they need to do what's asked of them. Hmm. Talk about um, this guilt, I guess this fear, this anxiety. I, I guess some guilt is uh, also associated with people that are that are people pleasers. If, if we're somebody that really wants to, to please people, are we more likely to be to have guilt used on us? Yes, we are, because a lot of people, pleasers, really, um, they see their self-worth based on what other people think about them. And they live their lives avoiding maybe hurting other people's feelings. So they're especially susceptible to feeling guilty when, especially if they get a reaction they don't like from someone else because their worthiness as a person as a person is based off of that person's reaction. So, of course, they're going to be more susceptible to think, okay, I need to do what is being asked of me, or that person's going to view me as a bad person. They might um, be conflictual with me, and that's going to make that person feel uncomfortable. Hmm. Do, uh, I mean, because... Oh, it's such a it's such a tangled web, isn't it? Because <laughs> and you you bring up that it really impacts kind of the boundaries we set. So we end up, I guess, setting looser boundaries if if we play too much into the guilt mentality. Exactly. So we end up negotiating things that are really non negotiable for ourselves, but we don't even realize that we're doing it. 
because um, we don't have that sense of self. Our self, sense of self isn't based on our own worth of our own goals and our own values. It's based on other people's goals and values. So it does, it gets tangled up in that way, and it, and it confuses the person trying, that's trying to be pleasing. Well, and which must kind of then fall back on itself, because if I'm negotiating things that are non-negotiable, it probably at some level of me induces more guilt. Exactly. And then it's makes kind of me more cycle. susceptible to then having somebody exercise guilt. And and then I guess we start becoming someone we're not. And this is where you could almost find yourself really deep, you know, 5, 10, 20 years deep into a marriage when you realize, you know, I'm not living up to me. I'm not doing anything I believe I should be doing. Exactly. So yourself vanishes in relationships. And this is what I, I see a lot of people come to me feeling lost or violated by the people in their lives because they aren't setting those boundaries. No one's going to set them for them. You have to be the one to do that yourself. You have to know what your likes and dislikes are, what you are, what you want to do, what you don't want to do. And if you're letting other people set those rules for you, then you're not acting for self. And when you're not acting for self, you will feel lost in your relationships. You will feel like they're more of a burden than give and take. And you'll lose that intimacy in your relationship because the other person's not knowing you for who you really are and what you're all about. So it really plays into a lot of aspects of, of who you are and, and who you are with the people that you care about. And then you have to keep this facade going. Then, then it really exactly. is. Yeah, you're living a lie. You're just so you, you can't feel peace. Exactly. Is you it, think that those pleasing behaviors, will you do it to harmonize and keep the peace. Yeah. But, and it might. And, you know, in little scenarios, you might avoid some conflict, but in the long run, you're really creating conflict with yourself and you are creating, you know, dissatisfaction for your relationships in the future. So it's not really solving the long term issues. It's just reducing your anxiety in that moment for if the conflict's going to occur. Mm. And then I, I have a lot of couples or people that, you know, maybe 20 years into their marriage, then they decide they're not going to do this anymore. So now they're going to actually start to set boundaries and be firm. And boy, does, does that create a whole other host of problems. Because now the partner's like, what? You haven't been like this forever. Who is this person? <laughs> exactly. So then you get pushed back. So if you say I've always, maybe you come up in a family that you've learned how to set the proper boundaries and you've always been able to just have those types of relationships, then it's, it's an easier transition. But if you're someone that's really never set boundaries and it's always been difficult for you and you're always giving in and one day you just had enough, then the people in your lives are going to be a bit confused and that you're going to get pushback from them. And it's not because they're mean or they're bad people. It's because they're saying, hey, like you've always been this way. You've always been in this role and now you want to change. So that means I have to change. And so it can be uncomfortable for people. So that's, and then the people pleaser, the someone trying to build more of a self is like, okay, maybe I'm really doing the wrong thing because I'm upsetting everybody around me. But I tend to let my clients know that that's when you actually know that you are changing and things are um, going to be different in your relationship when you do get that, that pushback from the people. You know that, okay, now I'm starting to speak up and I'm starting to act more for myself. Hmm. How, what, and how do you determine – this is probably so critical, I think, to all of us. At what point um, are we being uh, selfless? And, I mean, in a way, 
truly trying to live without all the guilt and and really living up to who I am and versus just being selfish when, you know, I'm just now making everything about me again. So people do come and they have a very hard time with that. So I like to differentiate between that um, and that, you know, making yourself priority, that idea that it is selfish. We have to change that idea and change that mindset because when you make yourself a priority and you're really putting your own goals, your own values out there, and that's actually better for your relationships. So it's not selfish. The selfless, the, actually the selfish thing to do is to be selfless because in a lot of those um, situations, you're doing things for people and you're stepping in when those people could be doing those things for themselves. Mm. And when you do that, you're hindering their progress and their growth. They tend to always be coming to you for everything that they need because they're not going to end up being feeling capable that they can solve their own issues and take responsibility for their lives. So it's not actually the right thing to do. So I think the selfish thing is when, you know, you're only caring about yourself and your immediate wants and you're not taking people into account. But when you do prioritize yourself, you're taking yourself into account, you're taking your relationships into account, and you're taking the other person into account. And you you will have better, more fulfilling relationships. So I don't think it's it's the selfish thing to do. Does does being self... does being selfless eliminate your guilt? So is guilt based on kind of your sense of what's right or wrong, or is it based on your mind's version of, you know, what others – what you need from others? Does that make sense? Is – is um, I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out – because there is – there's kind of like you were talking about. There's a healthy guilt that gets us to change when we're doing something that maybe isn't appropriate or something we shouldn't be doing. And then there's kind of the unhealthy guilt where, you know, I'm just trying to I, – I want others to like me. I don't want to ever be a naysayer or a negative person. I, I guess how do, we, how, do we, how do we start to change this if, if I don't even know the difference between why I'm feeling the guilt I'm feeling? Exactly. So it really is important to differentiate between the two. So the guilt that gets in the way of, you know, setting proper boundaries or really doing the right thing really stems from our families of origin and how we were portrayed. If we grew up in families and we were put in the role of always being the helper and the pleaser, maybe we had um, more dominant or abusive or even just anxious parental figures you've learned in order to keep the peace in your relationships, you need to have yourself vanish. You have to be the pleaser. So you grow up having kind of, I don't want, I don't want to really say twisted, but you have a different idea of what it means to, to be in relationships with the people you care about. And if say you are being brought up with anxious caregivers and you do start bringing yourself out, you might get really bad reactions. And those reactions then, become your inner voice of guilt, mm. which makes you, it's really just the fear and anxiety of how people are going to treat you. So as you get older and maybe and you find yourself being having that conflict between really knowing what the right thing to do and isn't, that's why it's important to really start building yourself when you're not in those anxious moments thinking, okay, what are my values? What are my goals? What do I think it is 
to be a good person, be a, who do I want to be as a family member, as a friend, as a partner, knowing that aside when you're not in those moments. And then when you are in those moments where guilt comes in, you can have a conversation with guilt. And you say, okay, well, is this a time where you're telling me what's necessary or is this a time you're just being that nagging anxiety um, from, you know, my childhood that's letting me know what's safe or not safe? Um, so I think that's really, it's up to the person to decide and they have to take each situation as is and try to bring themselves into that. Mm. And and their mind, their thinking, their logical brain in those moments to really know what their true self wants, not what their anxiety and the guilt and the fear wants from yeah. them. And discerning the difference. That's powerful. Uh, let's take a break. Again, today we're talking with Eileen Strauss-Cohen. She is a PhD, a, a psychotherapist. And if you go to her website, DrEileen.com, DrEileen.com, we'll take a break, come back and continue the discussion about how we can uh, actually be kind of a more self-full human being, how we can differentiate between some of the thoughts that may have been handed down to us, the fears and our anxieties, and instead lead our lives in a more selfless way. Powerful stuff. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back. Today we are speaking with Dr. Eileen Strauss-Cohen, and she is uh, she's a psychotherapist, also a blogger, an adjunct professor in the Department of Counseling at Barry University, and has written an article, When Guilt Keeps You From Setting Your Boundaries. She's talking about how we can, can really kind of sort through our history, our our minds work that we've kind of been, we've grown up in, the way we tend to think through our fear our anxieties. And uh, is it true? I I guess, um, Eileen, you are, you're about to, you're writing a book and your, your book is to help people kind of get a better, stronger self of sense, uh, a self of sense of self, a a stronger sense of their agency. Um, Talk about your book that's coming out. Yeah. So it ties into everything we've been talking about here. And the purpose is really to help people build a strong sense of self. It will, help people that are feeling lost and maybe have a hard time saying no and have an urge to do everything that's asked of them. So in the book, I speak a lot about first having individuals change their mindset, bringing a different awareness of the idea of what it means to be a good person, family member, and friend. And I really gear it towards people that identify as people pleasers or overfunctioners, perfectionists. They might think they're always too nice. They also call themselves pushovers. So I think my book gives people permission to really start focusing on themselves and and actually gives them hands-on, step-by-step process of how to change their unhelpful perceptions and their behaviors and also their relationships. Yeah, because if if you're saying yes to everything, um, there's a problem there, right? Because it means you're saying no to some things and some things may be more important. Exactly. You're not prioritizing what you need to do. So you might feel overwhelmed in other people's stuff and you're not dealing with yours. So what I see a lot from people is that we, we get a certain amount of energy 
And if we're putting all our energy into everybody else and what they need, we're not, we don't have enough left for us. So, and I think a lot of people struggle with that because they're like, well, I, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing whatever is asked of me. Um, but I don't, I still don't feel good. So there's a disconnect there. Um, that's so that's why with, with clients, I, we talk about, you know, we, we challenge those ideas and we, we really evaluate um, what they think is going to be the right thing to do from here on out. And, and so um, how, as, as we think about evaluating that, as we think about kind of uh, breaking it down, I, I guess the first key is to recognize you are a pleaser. You're somebody that is, is willing to say yes to everything. <laughs> exactly. And it's an uncomfortable way to live. It doesn't give you that feeling of freedom. You know, you feel trapped. You, you don't think that you have the choice to say no. It's like it's an instant urge that um, it's a knee jerk reaction. And if we could take in that moment that we get that automatic knee jerk reaction, if you could bring your thinking into that moment and evaluate, okay, well, what would be the best thing for me to do in this situation? Who do I really want to be? What do I really want to say? Then real change can take place. If you're just always going by your natural urges and your instincts, you're going to end up living a life that isn't yours. You're going to have relationships that aren't fulfilling. And, and it's really uncomfortable to be in that, that situation. Um, and so, so I guess this would this would apply. We we kind of think of it as people pleasers that are like that, but uh, there's other parallel paradigms, right? Like an overachiever um, or a perfectionist. Are they are they similar mindsets? Yeah, it's a very similar mindset. I think it's just different ways of saying it or how people identify themselves. Um, some people might come in and just say, "I I don't like confrontation." I don't know how to tell people that I have too much on my plate right now. They don't necessarily have a word for it yet. And I don't like to give people words to identify what they're feeling. So I might ask my client to say, okay, well, what would you call that? What's that, what's that mean to you? I mean, these are just some words that have come to me. Another one's like approval seeker. I'm always approval seeker. I'm always seeking approval. Mm. Like nothing's ever good enough for me just to say I'm doing a good job. I need everybody in my life to tell me what a wonderful job I'm doing. So these are behaviors that they start noticing that are hindering their lives, yeah. making them feel like prisoners. And um, um, I, I have a client I'm working with who is so frustrated with her parent, her in-laws, um, and there's a big event coming up and the in-laws want everyone to go, but the in-laws have offended her. And um, so we've been working with the couple to go talk to the in-laws about how they were offended. And in, what's interesting is then she's like, oh, well, I don't want to cause a problem. And I'm like, well, if you don't take if you don't go and your husband doesn't go to this family event, isn't that going to cause a problem? But it's it's almost like they they have this dueling commitment going on where they they kind of like to complain about the pain. But they also don't want to face the conflict. Exactly. So they think that by avoiding, they're actually doing the right thing, but they're not because they end up becoming resentful, complaining. And the other people might not even know. They don't have any idea of how you're feeling because you never let them know. And it doesn't, we have this idea that has to be conflictual or like a big issue. But if you approach people in a clear way, letting them know what it is you're thinking, not placing the blame on them, 
but saying, okay, this is, you know, where I'm coming from. Usually you get a better response than what you imagine in your head. You might very well get a reaction, like initially, but most of the time it's not as bad as you you think it is. So I think a lot of what happens is like your clients, it's, a, it's an avoidance behavior. They're avoiding that initial anxiety within them, which is actually going to end up creating more down the line in, in their relationships with their family. Right. And, and, and I guess um, part of this is you you at some point have to be willing to do something different, to try something different instead of just using the same old story, the same old excuse. Exactly. So we, we're always expecting everyone else to change. You know, oh, they need to approach me differently. They just need to be less demanding. But no one's going to do that for you. Unless you communicate out loud and tell people like how you're feeling inside, no one's going to be willing to take that job on for you. And, and they don't know. So you have to take responsibility for your own self because no one else is going to. Basically. And um, and in the end, this is good for everyone else as well, right? And and it's maybe explain why 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 is it good that we set the boundary and take a stand, and how does that benefit my family members and the people around me? So you're creating more intimate relationships. You're able, people are going to know who you are, your authentic self. They're going to see you and what you're all about. People that come in that say they're selfless, they're like, people are always telling me I'm so secretive or they don't know me or they don't feel close to me or, and they don't feel close to people because people sense that they know you're hiding. You're not showing all of yourself. So that doesn't allow for that intimacy. Another thing is, like I said before, is that you're taking on things that other people could be doing for themselves. And then they become more anxious because they're learning to only be able to rely on you when something happens. So if you're not available in that moment, they're like, what do I do? So they don't, they're not able to be confident in themselves and how they can resolve things. And then you become overwhelmed because they're always coming to you and um, for stuff. And then you don't have time to deal with your own things. So that's when it, it starts hindering your relationships because, one, you're not feeling intimate or close. And you're also feeling resentful. And two is that you're hindering other people's progress and growth. Mm. And again, that's you're not going to get closer. You're not going to create a better relationship by always hiding from who you really are. Exactly. That's uh, the definition of relationships. You're knowing each other. You want people to accept you for who you are and vice versa. No one can accept you for who you are if you're always in pleasing mode. You're being what, every, what you think everybody else wants you to be, yeah. not really who you are. And you might not know who that person is if you've been doing that your whole life. That's why it's important to start becoming more self-aware in each situation that's brought to you and start thinking and, and looking at yourself and your internal functioning and, and taking out all that awareness. Usually people that are people-pleasing, their awareness is on the outside world. They're not very aware of what's going on with them. So one of my first things is I have people do is start concentrating on themselves and paying more attention, becoming an observer of their own lives, and then come back to me and let me know what they see because that's something new for them. They're not used to being aware of their own internal functioning. Mm, that's great, and that's great advice. Know yourself, right? Know yourself exactly. first before you try to go know everybody else around you. Well, Eileen, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work. Again, Eileen Strauss-Cohen is her name. Dr. Eileen is her website. Go check that out as well and, uh, and begin the journey of kind of taking yourself back and understanding who you are, becoming more self-aware. 
You, you really, you can't you can't be more outside of yourself until you've obtained that private victory. The private victory over yourself, understanding yourself, must precede your public victories, as Stephen Covey taught. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, isn't it true? You just don't necessarily know who you are. And a lot of us have had handed down to us just ideas, thoughts, assumptions, expectations of the way we're supposed to be. And many, and I think honestly, very unintentionally, no one was trying to destroy your life by by inducing a little guilt or you know trying to get you to eat your peas or – Hey, you better eat your peas because there's people in Africa that don't have food. Oh, boy, I better keep eating then. Um, You can see how we all influence each other on this great big ball of mud. And we don't always do it in the healthiest way possible. We don't always do it in in, um, the most selfless way either. So if each of us could take a little bit more ownership of our lives and – and, and understand who we are and become more self-aware as to why we're doing what we're doing um, instead of just continually living the pattern. Boy, it would be better, I think, for all of us. Uh, funny story, um, an 11-year-old girl uh, really responds in such an interesting way to a feedback form about a teacher. And uh, it's now gone viral. Ava, who is the daughter of a Mason Cross um, was asked to give feedback on her teacher for an end-of-year review. And she said she took the issue with um, with his use of collective punishment. She did not like the way that uh, the teacher had um, punished the entire class simply because a few people did not do an assignment. And so in her um, review, her feedback form, she wrote that uh, – from the, I guess, like the Glasgow Accords from 1949, Geneva. She said, you are not to use collective punishments. It is not fair on the many people who did nothing under the 1949 Geneva Conventions. It is a war crime. So she basically was accusing her teacher of performing a war crime because the teacher, you know, made everyone pay for the fact that some people didn't do their homework. Uh, Many praised Ava for thinking her mind, while one person suggested she should be awarded bonus points for her creative thinking and excellent example. But holy cow, uh, now the teachers are are responsible for uh, war crimes. Maybe the teacher was a better teacher than they thought if they were able to teach an 11-year-old about the 1949, this and that. You get an 11-year-old to, like, you know, rely on the Geneva Conventions. That's – you've done something. Yeah. I'd take that as a win as a teacher. That's a really great point, Cole, because I'm telling you, how many people have learned about the Geneva Conventions and they would still never use it on a feedback form? Oh, no. I'm I'm afraid to find out when my kids learn about it, then they're really going to – I'll be charged with a lot of war crimes. Also, a man uh, – men dressed as construction workers steal nearly $800,000 worth of jewelry in Brooklyn. 
Four men dressed like construction workers robbed a jewelry shop Thursday, made off with the $800,000 worth of jewelry, according to police. Three suspects who were wearing orange and yellow vests entered the store just after 5 p.m. Sources said a fourth man stood outside with a sign that read, Men at Work. Sources said the thieves then ran out of the store and were last seen running in a Borough Hall subway station. Police recovered the protective suits uh, nearby, their, their, their uniforms. So, by the way, so who do you trust, though? Construction workers? Because then what if somebody came in dressed like a cop, you know, and then another came in dressed like an Indian chief? Mm-hmm. Then you've got like YMCA. Why, YMCA. <laughs> I mean – who do you trust in it? But by the way, you got to you got to appreciate people that are willing to you know dedicate themselves to to take it that far. Um, anyway, that's the show. Uh, next hour, screen cleaning will be up. Jeff Simpson, our co-host, will be hosting his show, Screen Cleaning, all about media, making uh, cleaning up the media so that you can use it and show it with your family. A wonderful review. Um, but just remember, we appreciate the time. We know we can't do the show without you. And so we'll be back again after spring cleaning next hour. We'll be back every Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern time. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn. But take care of each other. Make it a great make it a great weekend. Get rejuvenated and get ready to start it all over again next week. Until then, take care. Have fun. will be the theme today since your host Jeff Simpson is away. He's celebrating the birth of his son but do not despair we'll still have some fun. We'll be speaking with Matt Meese from Studio C. The sound of his voice will fill you with glee. Jeff and Matt will perform a radio show about a child detective in search of his foe and following our time with our special guest We'll share with you which baby movies are best. Then a comedian jokes about parenthood in our favorite segment, Panning for Good. Welcome to this special edition of Screen Cleaning. This is Screen Cleaning, the baby edition. You know, I can't decide if that intro was super cute or if it just made me sleepy. (laughs) Well, in case you're confused, let me clarify what's happening on the show today. If you're hearing this right now, it means I'm not physically here because my baby boy was born. And, uh, oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I didn't, didn't really do much, but uh, thank you just the same. Yes, yes, yes. It is very exciting. But uh, baby or no, uh, the show must go on. You know, this is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Every Friday at 9, we'll bring you all the entertainment news and topics you won't want to miss. 
But more than just that, we'll be bringing you exclusive trailers, serious interviews regarding every facet of the entertainment business. Plus, uh, do you struggle to find quality entertainment for your whole family? I'm not talking about just passable entertainment. I'm talking about quality entertainment. Well, we're going to help you find it. We're going to shine a big old spotlight on the best entertainment around. So uh, let's kick things off by giving you a recap of the very latest and very best in entertainment news. Uh, The best midlife crisis news. Now, it's no secret that those fidget toys that you see at school, at work, are really, uh, really coming on strong here. And, you know, in fact, even on the Matt Townsend show, Matt Townsend himself has been playing with them. And uh, to me, this is this is good news in a way. You know, we always talk about how horrible this is and how distracting it is for students and people at work. But, you know, maybe this is a good thing for somebody in Matt's uh, age bracket. We'll just call it middle aged um, to be playing with a fidget toy. You know, it could be a lot worse. He could be going out and making, you know, irresponsible purchases or doing other things he might not be proud of. But, you know, if this is his version of a midlife crisis, then we'll take it, right? So that's our best midlife crisis news. In the best date news, uh, last week we talked about a couple that went on a date and the man kept complaining that his date was texting throughout the whole movie. And in fact, he was so annoyed that uh, he filed suit against this woman and wants his $17 and change back for the cost of the IMAX ticket that he bought for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and we don't we don't know what the end of that story is but it made me think back to my dating days you know and I still date my wife but uh, right after we had just been married we went to the movies together and we were going to see Avatar and they have all these concessions and uh different fast food places inside the mall so you would think you know just Purchasing something in the mall qualifies you to be able to take whatever it is you purchased into the movie, right? Well, I was sitting in the movie theater waiting for my wife, saving seats. She went down to the DQ to get us some blizzards. She went up the escalator and handed in her ticket and was trying to walk past the gentleman taking her ticket with these two blizzards. And the the 13-year-old boy, as my wife likes to describe it, I'm sure he was older than that, He said, "Uh, excuse me, you can't take those blizzards in here. And my wife paused for a second and then just said, well, yeah, my my husband is in the movie theater right now, so I'm just going to take this to him. And she kept walking. It was unprecedented. At least for me, I would never, ever attempt something like that. And to me, I, I was very impressed by that. Not that she was breaking rules or anything, but... You know, we'd already purchased this. Had the concessions sold blizzards, we would have bought them. But uh, we enjoyed our blizzards while watching Avatar. And finally, we are going to give you the best movie trailer news. And actually, this is going to be a part of our Ripped from the Headlines segment today. You know, say what you will about Trump and uh, Trump care. He's he's really hanging in there with it, but uh, he's struggling. He, To be honest, he's struggling to get the votes and the support that he needs. And uh, in fact, they've already they've already made a movie about it. And we're going to feature it here exclusively on screen cleaning on the Matt Townsend show this summer only in theaters. 
A new president falls out of love with a non-Republican health care plan. The gains that we've made are there. 20 million people have health insurance that didn't have it before. And struggles to get support for his new plan. The House plan will expand choice, lower costs, and ensure health care access for all. We're negotiating with everybody. While he comes to terms with his roots. Stop and take a moment to imagine how you would feel if you just met a guy named Donald Trump. And his political identity. It's a big, fat, beautiful negotiation. My big, fat, beautiful negotiation. His problems are nothing a little Windex can't cure. Mmm, sounds good. You may have a hard time finding that in the movie theaters, but uh, take a look. Maybe you'll see it. Anyway, up next, we've got megastar Matt Meese on the show. He's here to give us the -the behind-the-scenes look at the phenomenon that is Studio C. Stick with us. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. That tune probably sounds familiar to you, yeah? If you're a fan of good, clean humor and more specifically the popular sketch comedy TV show Studio C, then you are in for a real treat. Our guest today is the co-creator and star of Studio C. He's the nicest, talented person I know, and he's also the most talented, nice person that I know, if that makes any sense. Matt Meese, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So we go, you know, we go way back, uh, I don't know, eight years. I guess that's not way back. We're probably not old enough to be going way back. Um <laughs> But I was hoping this morning that you could kind of give us a little bit of a behind the the scenes with Studio C, talk about how it all came to be and, and where it all started. Luckily, it's not like a behind the music type of deal where it's all tragic all the, and somebody drama, was yeah. addicted to something <laughs> or other. But yeah, could you just give us a little bit of backstory on, on how it all came to be? Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned Divine Comedy. Uh, and for those who don't know, that's where Jeff and I met is Divine Comedy. We, we, our first year – well, my first year, Jeff's only year in Divine Comedy, sadly, was my first year. They kicked me out. They they did not. He he graduated and got married and, and lived a full life <laughs> for eight years. I'm still living it. <laughs> no, no. Um, but uh, then uh, – yeah, so we – I did that. I stayed at Divine Comedy because I didn't get married and that's the rule. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I stayed there for five years. I did Divine Comedy. And um, and I heard that TV was looking for new content. And I said, well, we're new for TV at least. And so I came over to the station and met with Jared Shores. And I said, Jared, why don't you just uh, – I told him like our YouTube numbers and stuff, which, uh, you know, not much to, to – uh, speak of at the time, but I think <laughs> I think BYUTV was like fresh enough and looking for new stuff enough that our numbers were like, yeah, okay, those are not bad. And uh, so I said, why don't you just come to a show and I think it'll just sell itself. You can see the audience react to us. You can see the content we're doing. You can see the talent, et cetera, et cetera. And so he came, he saw, he liked it. And uh, and then it was basically like, how do we just put cameras in front of this and and make it work? Right. 
Excellent. So now I, I know even Studio C itself kind of went through a few different iterations, right? Didn't it? Mm. What did it start out as? What was the name of it before it was Studio C? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> we came up with a lot of names, uh, but I think the only one that we really landed on was called Common Room. Uh, because Jeremy on a whim said, let's just call it Gryffindor Common Room. And we're like, actually, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> well, but why would you just call it Common Room? Um, but then Common Room had already been taken by someone, uh, by a group that, uh, yeah, we were like, yeah, we, we don't want to share <laughs> anything. Of course, yeah. Studio C has, we have found, been taken by many, many groups. Um, but hopefully we're the, the biggest Studio C there is now. Well, we've never heard of another Studio C or even another common room unless it was from Harry Potter. So you guys are doing something <laughs> right, right? Uh, I think there's like a Studio C makeup thing and we've just oh. destroyed them now on Instagram because if you search the hashtag, mm. you will rarely find makeup anymore. And you'll just Maybe you guys should partner up or something. Maybe they could uh, do the makeup for the show. Oh, now you're thinking – uh, it's not that great of an idea. It's it's all right. It's not a bad one, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Studio C, um, you you started out in Divine Comedy. Had you ever mm-hmm. seen a Divine Comedy show before you had auditioned? Yeah, yeah. I I went to a couple of their best of shows. That's mm-hmm. just like the best things that they had that semester, and. Uh, and it was it's such a big event, you know. They do it in the JSB, which seats like eight hundred and forty four people or something like that. Um, and uh, and it's just packed, and they throw glow sticks and candy, and it's just high energy. And the sketches were hilarious, and I just thought, man, it looks like they're having so much fun. Um, and so that that incubated in me; <laughs> those seeds had been planted. yeah. And yeah, and so I I decided I I had to audition because if I didn't audition, I would always I would always wonder what what if I had auditioned? Sure, you know, I'd, I'd regret it. You know, so my first memory of you, I had never been to a Divine Comedy show, um, and a friend handed me a flyer. Uh, actually, another Divine comedian, uh-huh. Matt. It was another Matt. Was it Matt uh, uh, Stringham? Stringham. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't really know anything about it. Wanted to. I knew they were having two days of audition, so I went over there to just try to get a taste of what people were responding to and maybe yeah. what they were looking for. And I walk in, and I don't think it was you. I don't think you were the first person that I saw, but I remember you getting up with a guitar, uh-huh. and they you only get two minutes, and they're very strict about that, right? And you were you were speak singing a song <laughs> about a bird, yes. And you had the audience in stitches. And I remember also thinking that you were really funny. And I thought, oh, man, I've got my work cut out for me. I better go home and put something together that's really spectacular. Ah. So that's my first memory of you. Um, Getting back to Studio C a little bit, what is it about Studio C, which is a half an hour sketch comedy show on BYU TV, what is it about Studio C that is different from other sketch comedy shows. Well, uh, that's that's a good question, and I think the big thing uh, is that we we try to make sure that uh, all the content is appropriate for everyone. So the idea being that a family could sit down and watch it together, and no one has to like, 
you know, muted at a certain part or like, okay, we'll watch this after the kids go to bed kind of a thing. Or the kids really like this, but the adults don't and they're just humoring the kids or whatever. You know what I mean? We don't yeah. – we didn't want that. We want something that was legitimately entertaining and safe for everyone. Sure. So uh, that used to be a more common thing. It has since gone out of style and so it gives us this great niche because very few people are doing it anymore. You're right. You know, there, there there doesn't seem to be very much content for people who are looking for clean entertainment. I read an interesting quote recently from Zach Galifianakis, of all people. Mm. Uh, he came out with this movie, Masterminds. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, Jared Hess, who's a yeah. BYU alum. And uh, I think he is anyway. He is. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, he is because that's where he met, uh, met up with John Heater and, oh, okay. and all those guys. Yeah. Um, he talked about how refreshing it was to do a movie like this, a movie that you could take your aunt to uh, is how he described uh-huh. it. You know, and there's not that awkward, uh, quiet ride home with your aunt <laughs> in the car, not knowing what to say because of all these obscenities that you'd seen on the screen. So, yeah, even people that are in Hollywood that are putting out this content that maybe isn't as clean – are agreeing that, you know, it's kind of a breath of fresh air to have something yeah. that I can watch with my family. Yeah. Yeah. Any any little tidbits or I don't – I guess we don't have to call them secrets, but little behind-the-scene uh, things that people might find interesting yeah. or even a, a story. Well, I, I don't have any like story that jumps to mind per se, but I can tell you a little bit about the process um, and maybe something will come to mind. I mean, Let's for, do it. For example, like we always change up our writing process every year um, partially because it's like we just need to just change it, keep it fresh. Um, and this last year what we did is I said, why don't we just break up into two writers' rooms and um, each room is responsible for bringing uh, five – fully-fledged edited sketches to the end-of-the-week pitch meeting on Friday. And so uh, that gives us 10 sketches to look at on Friday after we've you know vetted them and edited them. So they should be like pretty good sketches by the time we get to Friday. And the goal is that we need to approve seven of them. And so uh, backing up, in order to get to five good sketches, you have to pitch at least 10 as a group. Um, and in and so it's just it's just the rule, and that's like that's a great average. If you're keeping half of what you write, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as batting averages go, if you get on base half the time, you, absolutely you're making tons of money. So you guys are batting five hundred. <laughs> that's the goal, um, or at least you know somewhere in there. Like honestly, like even if you kept a third of what you write, that's yeah. still great. So uh, I think the audience might be surprised to know that we throw away. At least half of everything that we've written, hmm. and so you might watch the episode and be like, "I didn't like that sketch." Be like, imagine what we threw away. <laughs> See, now that would either make a good a good sketch on its own, or maybe like a an extra season of of yeah. Studio C during an off time or off season. Hmm. It, there's plenty of stuff, <laughs> and I honestly, and some of it's like probably better than we think it is. That's sure. fair, but I think generally speaking, we, we've been pretty accurate. I think you know somewhere around eighty, ninety percent of the time, we're like pretty, pretty on. We're speaking with Matt Meese, the star of Studio C and the co-creator of Studio C as well. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, Matt's going to tell us a little more about what is arguably his most famous sketch. You won't want to miss it. Coming up next here on Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. 
Back now to Scott Sterling. He looks a bit worse for wear, but ready for round two. And Shaw takes a moment. Here he goes with the approach. Oh! oh! Sterling with the fantastic dive. The ball flies straight through his hands and once again strikes him straight in the schnoz. And let's see it again on the old instant replay. Oh, every excruciating <laughs> detail captured in HD perfection. <laughs> that, of course, is a clip from the famous Scott Sterling sketch on Studio C, made famous by Matt Meese, who is our guest here this morning. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So uh, just really quickly with that sketch, is that one that you wrote or did one of the other cast members write that? Yeah, I, I wrote that. And um, But uh, a lot of like some of the, some of the funniest lines uh, didn't come from me. It was just improv uh, when we got Steven and Jason into the sound booth to record the audio. And we actually had to make up a, quite a bit of time because we had the, the sketch was much longer than I had scripted it to be. It was like five <laughs> minutes or something ridiculous. Wow. And, Scott yeah. Sterling probably would not be alive after five minutes of that. <laughs> That's really interesting. You brought up something that uh, that maybe most people don't think about that in the writing process, perhaps um, other people can help lift a script higher than it was before. Yeah. That sounds, you know, that that kind of reminds me of of how it was in Divine Comedy too. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely t- took that pattern. You yeah. Know, we we were all in Divine Comedy and so we carried a lot of things over from that. So you were all in Divine Comedy. Mm-hmm. Is that would you say that's your favorite sketch by the way? Uh I uh maybe. Uh it just it's so hard because like all the new stuff you write, you're like, "Oh yeah, this is my my new favorite." And you just keep looking forward, ideally. They're all your babies. <laughs> or not your baby, Hopefully as they not. would say in Divine Comedy. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about, you have a degree in psychology. That is right. And yet you're not working in psychology. <laughs> but in a way, maybe you are. What is it, it? It seems like I know several people that have gotten a degree in psychology and yet they do something related to comedy or performance. Mm. What mm. are the benefits of having the psychology degree? I, I, I think there are a lot of benefits uh, just generally. And I think what the biggest takeaway for me from my degree was that um, – well, the, everyone's like their own brand of crazy, and <laughs> and we all have a lot in common, and yet at the same time we also like approach things differently. We just have different perspective on things, but at the end of the day, we're more alike than we care to acknowledge sometimes, or mm. or maybe realize. So um, I think there is something about comedy that is just like this universal thing. It's this like great equalizer in a lot of ways. It just brings everyone in and gives them a shared experience. And some sketches, like Scott Sterling, uh, they kind of transcend some language barriers because there's a lot of physical comedy there. And so uh, – and Scott Sterling, the first one, got got big overseas like in Europe somewhere um, before it, it got big here. Mm. And so it was just one of those things where it's like, yeah, we, we are similar, aren't we? I mean here are these people across the world speaking different languages, having very different cultural experiences, and yet still enjoy something as much as we do. And, and uh, yeah, we're, we're more alike than we're different. So I'm curious, what makes you laugh? Obviously, you know, you work with, with a bunch of other people that are super funny, whether it's in the writing room or just in rehearsal. Mm-hmm. You're constantly surrounded by these funny people. But, you know, just at home – when you're watching a show or what what makes you laugh yeah i honestly and 
I, I guess this is almost expected, but I, I think physical comedy is very funny. Um, I, I find a lot of different kinds of humor very fun. But the thing that like will make me laugh out loud and consistently is usually physical comedy type stuff um, or someone just saying something in a funny way. It's more performance than it is the line. Sure. That makes sense. Any, any examples? Oh, man. I mean like my first influences I think are, are – uh, people like Steve Martin, Martin Short. Sure, uh, they they definitely made me laugh a lot. But you know, like I also watched Three Stooges, which you know is considered more, much more lowbrow kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And but I, you know, I just enjoyed it. And uh, growing up, man, there's there's been a lot of people that I really admire. I think Zach Braff is very funny. I think Robert Downey Jr. I think, um, uh, I think. Um, uh, Kate McKinnon, I think, is oh my uh, goodness, she just kills me. She just won an <laughs> Emmy for Saturday Night Live. Oh, did she? Good. Yeah, she, she deserves did. one. She deserves yeah. several. I think she's fantastic. You mentioned Martin Short. I, for me, I I don't think I can watch a Jiminy Glick segment <laughs> and not cry, be crying right? at the end. It's, it's so, so funny. funny. Yeah. Uh, so another thing, kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about. You know, a lot of people, I think they just have this mindset of, oh, this guy's funny. You know, he can he can put it on at the drop of a hat. I mean, he loves to always be on. Are you the type of person that always loves to be in the spotlight? Are you more of an extrovert or are you more of an introvert? Uh, I, I'm definitely more of an introvert, which honestly, it. <laughs> it's like basically the whole cast is that way. I think Stacy might be the exception. Um, but generally everyone's like pretty, pretty calm and, uh, not what you might expect based on just watching us on TV. Yeah. You know, just like, yeah, we're just normal and, and not looking for attention, I guess is the. Sure. I was, I was never the class clown or anything like that. I was just, I was just mad. (laughs) Still am. So, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, when it's time to perform, it's, it's a different. Yeah. We're speaking here with uh, Matt Meese, co-creator and cast member of Studio C. He's kind enough to be here with us this morning. When we come back, as a little treat from us to you, Matt and I are going to put on a little performance for you. Stick with us. It's a performance of Matt Meese's you're only going to hear right here on Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. We've been having some fun with our guest, Matt Meese of Studio C fame. We thought it'd be fun. Well, I thought it'd be fun, and and Matt graciously agreed to it. But uh, we've got a little old radio sketch here that we would like to perform. Uh, I'm. I'll give you a little background. It's it it's about a uh, school aged an elementary school aged detective. And it's kind of in the vein of all those old radio shows that uh, many of you may have uh, – you grew up listening to. So uh, we're just going to hop right into it and enjoy, starring Matt Meese and Jeff, Jeff Simpson. Simpson. Get ready for mystery. Get ready for suspense. Get ready for Cliff Regan, school age detective. Today's episode – Dramatic deception. I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for Detective Regan here. Well, I, when I get out of jail, I'm coming to get you, Regan. Do you hear me? I'm coming to get you. 
The name's Regan. Cliff Regan. And when you're in my line of work, you get threats like this every day. This one was from Francis Fairwater, a no-good drama teacher I caught stealing school supplies and selling them on the black market. Oh, I almost forgot. I'm a private detective for the school I attend, Soft Shoe Elementary. I hadn't thought about that case in over a year. But then I picked up the newspaper and noticed Fairwater was released from prison on good behavior. I had to laugh. Good behavior wasn't in Fairwater's vocabulary. I was about to turn to the funny pages when I heard a knock at the door. Come in. In walks this dame with graying hair and a slim figure. She looked down on her luck, which is probably why she was knocking on my door. Pardon the intrusion, but are you Cliff Regan, the famous detective? That's what my mom calls me. Her name was Beverly. Pleased to meet you. I'm Lady Catherine. All right, so her name wasn't Beverly. But I had a suspicious feeling it wasn't Lady Catherine either. Uh, what can I do for you, Lady Catherine? Oh, Detective Regan, I just had the most terrible news. Really, I'm just beside myself. This has just been the most dreadful experience I've ever experienced. Why don't we just take it from the top, slowly? She had been walking to Soft Shoe Elementary to pick up her nephew, Joey Morgan, when this kid jumps out of the bushes and takes her priceless gold necklace she had just happened to be wearing. When you're in my line of work, you hear the same sob story every day. She grabbed me by the coat and started to beg, just like a... Well, just like someone who begs. Please, Detective Regan, you've got to help me. You're the only one who can. I don't know, lady. I'm pretty busy here. Why don't you try the police? No, I I mean, uh, the police will just have me fill out a report and then they'll forget about it. No, no, I need someone who can offer quick results. You know, everyone in town says you're the best. You flatten me. You mean I flatter you? No, I mean you flatten me. You're stepping on my foot. Forgive me, Detective Regan. Oh, but you will find my necklace for me, won't you? Of course I will. When you're in my line of work, it's your job. Lady Catherine hadn't given me much of a description on the kid who took her gold necklace, but it sounded like the work of the school miscreant, Shorty. Oh, hey there, Regan. Solve any big mysteries lately? (laughs) Maybe you figured out what the lunch lady puts in the meatloaf. Enough small talk, Shorty. Where were you yesterday after school? Whoa, whoa, what's with all the questions? Am I in some sort of trouble here? You might be if you don't start talking. Oh, I'd love to chat if, uh, if the price is right. Save it, Shorty. You're not getting any of my money. I've got enough dirt on you to put you in detention until you're retired. All right, all right. Well, uh, let me see. Yesterday after school, I was, uh, burning ants with a magnifying glass. Ants, eh? You sure you weren't busy terrorizing a different type of ant? What are you talking about? Oh, why don't you just come clean? Isn't it true that you attacked Joey Morgan's Aunt Lady Catherine and took her gold necklace? No, it ain't true. Look, you gotta believe me. Why don't you ask Joey Morgan for yourself? Well, maybe I'll just ask Joey's Aunt Lady Catherine. You could, but I don't think it would do you any good. Oh, yeah? Why's that? Because Joey Morgan doesn't have an aunt. Well, Shorty's story checked out. Not only did Joey Morgan not have an aunt, but he had never heard of Lady Catherine. I had several questions on my mind. Who was this Lady Catherine? And why did she lie to me? Was there even a gold necklace stolen? And what did the lunch lady put in the meatloaf? As I sat at home searching for the answers, the phone rang. Regan here. Hello, Detective Regan. Lady Catherine here. 
Oh, Lady Catherine. What a treat. Detective Regan, I don't have much time to talk, but can we meet somewhere? I believe I have some information regarding my case that you might find very interesting. More interesting than the information I got from your nephew, Joey? Detective Regan, please. I've got to meet with you. It's not safe where I am. I'm afraid I... Oh, someone's coming. Who is it? I've got to go. Meet me at your office tonight at six o'clock. Lady Catherine, wait! What's going on? This case was like a hot stove. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I was heading out the door when suddenly it hit me. The door hit me right between the eyes. I must not have been watching where I was going. But if I hadn't run into that door, I may not have solved the mystery. Will Cliff Regan get to the bottom of the case of the stolen necklace? We'll find out after a word from our sponsor. Hello. That was a word from our sponsor. And now, it's time for the thrilling conclusion to Dramatic Deception. When we last left our hero, Cliff Regan, school-age detective, he was on his way to his office to meet Lady Catherine. Good evening, Detective Regan. It was Francis Fairwater, the no-good drama teacher I put away a year ago. Surprised to see me? Not really. I had a feeling I'd be seeing you tonight. I see. And how did you get that feeling? First of all, when I saw you in the paper that you'd been released from prison, I knew it was only a matter of time before you started some sort of scheme. When I figured out there was no Lady Catherine, I knew the woman who came to my office had to be a pretty good actor. Then I remembered you were a drama teacher, and that your favorite actress was Catherine Hepburn. Well done, Detective Regan. But you're wrong about one thing. There is such a person as Lady Catherine, and she really did have her gold necklace stolen by me. Fortunately, I was in disguise, so for all she knows, it could have been anyone. Why, it could have been you. Let me guess the rest. You had me come here so you could plant Lady Catherine's gold necklace on me. She's on her way right now with the police, and when they get here, I try to tell them I was helping Lady Catherine to find her necklace. Lady Catherine will say she's never met me. I'll go to jail, and Lady Catherine will go home with her gold necklace. But it won't be the real gold necklace, will it? You'll have held on to the real necklace, am I right? Precisely. You know, Detective Regan, you really are the best. But I'm afraid your days of solving crimes have run their course. Now let's just sit tight, and when the police get here, they'll catch you. Gold-handed. Not so fast, Fairwater. You just confessed to stealing Lady Catherine's necklace, and I have a witness to prove it. Come on out, Shorty. Way to go, Regan. You really cooked his goose. What? No! Now we can sit tight and wait for the police. All right, Regan, now we're even. Boy, you sure did solve that mystery. Say, do you think we'll ever find out what that lunch lady puts in the meatloaf? Shorty, there are some mysteries that may never be solved. But when you're in my line of work, you've got to accept that. Yes. Oh, well man. done. Brilliant, Matt Meese. This kind of thing is so fun. Well, thanks again, Matt, for spending some time with us this morning. And uh, thank you for sharing your wonderful talents with us. If you enjoyed that performance by Matt Meese, be sure and tell your friends that you heard it exclusively here on Screen Cleaning. You can share it or go back and listen to it by joining or by going to byuradio.org, iTunes, Stitcher. We're everywhere, folks. 
We'll be back in just a minute to continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. I walk through the streets and I realize that Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. And, uh, you know, we teased this earlier, but when my wife and I were getting ready for her to deliver our baby, she was hoping that maybe by watching some movies about babies, it would get things going in the labor process. Didn't really work that way, but uh, we, we did watch some enjoyable films, and it got me thinking, what are some good movies out there about babies? And I don't mean movies for babies. I mean movies for adults about babies. And uh, I thought of a few. The first one is a little film called Raising Arizona by uh, Ethan and Joel Cohen. Now, this is not something that you would normally hear me recommend on screen cleaning because it is about a couple that kidnaps a, a baby from a family that has quintuplets because they themselves cannot have children. And see, right right there, that sounds pretty dark and, and disturbing. But it's actually a madcap comedy. You know, it's more like a, a Looney Tunes cartoon than it is a serious crime film. There's one uh, funny scene in the film. So Nicolas Cage plays this ex-con and, and his wife is this ex-cop and they, they get married and they're moving on with their lives, but uh, Nicolas Cage still has a couple of outlaw friends who, in this scene, have just broken out of prison, and uh, they're explaining the situation to Nicolas Cage's wife, played by Holly Hunter. I was just explaining to your better half here that when we were tunneling out, we happened to hit the main sewer line. Dumb luck, that. And we followed that You mean you busted out of jail? No, ma'am. Uh, we released ourselves on our own recognizance. What Evel here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. <laughs> One of those voices belongs to John Goodman. And uh, they actually get wise of Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter's scheme to kidnap this baby and keep it for themselves. And uh, so they realize there's some reward money. So they step in and, and they kidnap the baby from the kidnappers. But they actually start to form a little special bond with it. Got some baby grub, baby wipes. Got them diapers, them disposable kind. I got me a packet of lube. They blow up in the funny shapes at all? No, just circular. Say, where's Junior? What do you mean, didn't you put him in? No, I thought. Promise we ain't ever gonna leave him, Gail. So the film is Raising Arizona. It is PG-13, but again, uh, it's more silly than it is serious. So check it out. Another good one. This one is very different from Raising Arizona. In fact, it's actually a documentary, and it's different from most documentaries in that there are no interviews or reenactments. It's just footage. And uh, we saw this movie before our five-year-old was born, and it really made me baby crazy. It's a look at one year in the life of four babies from around the world. There's one from Mongolia, Namibia, San Francisco, and Tokyo, and it is titled simply Babies. What I really enjoyed about this film, not just the fact that it's footage of these adorable babies from around the world, but uh, it really goes to show you that babies are pretty much the same everywhere. It doesn't matter where you come from. Um, whether it's, you know, the joy that comes from unrolling a, a roll of toilet paper. I think that happens in Mongolia. 
there's also this scene with these two babies that are fighting over a toy as they are, you know, banging on some rocks. And we've got a clip of that here. Babies is rated PG, just an adorable documentary with with just this great footage of of babies from around the world. The last film that I want to talk about is a film starring Diane Keaton. It's called Baby Boom, and this is a movie that that I grew up watching uh, as a kid. It uh, follows the life of a super yuppie who is thrown into turmoil when she inherits a baby from a distant relative. And again, as I said, it stars Diane Keaton as the yuppie in question. The film was made in 1987, so it has a lot of the typical 80s movie mishaps, uh, similar to the ones you'd see in Three Men and a Baby or Mr. Mom. But I have to say that the bond that Diane Keaton forms with this baby over time is pretty touching. Probably the most touching part of the film, after all the mishaps and frustrations, there's this exchange between Keaton and her baby after after she returns home from work one day. Ooh, that scene always gets me because I think it's the first time she says mama. Oh, so cute. Now it's time for a little segment that we do on every show. We feel it's very important to bring this segment to you. Our mission on screen cleaning is to help you find the best entertainment around. And one way in which we do that is by shining a spotlight on a particular movie, actor, performer, or story. And the name of the segment is Panning for Good. There's good in them dire hills. Okay, so you really don't have to look that hard to find the king of clean comedy. Comedian Jim Gaffigan is everywhere these days. He's selling out performance halls all over the world. He's appeared in numerous films and uh, most recently his own sitcom also. Gaffigan's sets typically deal with laziness, food, and the difficulties of being a father of five kids. Bedtime is a crisis. They act like they've never been to sleep before. Bed? What's that? No, I don't want to do that. Then it becomes some hostage negotiation, but in reverse. Look, if you stay in there, I will give you whatever you want. I will meet your demands. What do you want, a helicopter to Cuba? Anything. There's always one awake. Like they're taking shifts. All right, I'll annoy him from midnight to two. Who wants three to six? Now let's lie down and practice kicking them in our sleep. And here's an earlier bit from Gaffigan back when he only had four kids. I uh, recently became a father. Thank you. Became a father for the fourth time. Never as much applause on that part. Really no applause, right? Because after the third kid, people stop congratulating you. Then they just treat you like you're Amish. Four? Well, that's one way to live your life. 
can you build us one of those wood fireplaces? Four kids. Four kids. If you want to know what it's like to have a fourth, just imagine you're drowning. And then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> you know, Gaffigan made joke about being a lazy father, but his touring routine suggests he's anything but... He often travels from gig to gig with his large family in tow. Interesting fact about Jim Gaffigan, he hasn't always worked clean. Maybe having kids gives you perspective. I'm the father of two kids, and remember if you're listening to this right now that I'm witnessing the birth of my third kid, and I seem to mature and become softer with each birth. My kids just melt my heart every single day. I've got a five-year-old who's very much into music and dancing and performing, and which was is funny because when she was a baby, she was pretty lazy. And I'm what I mean by that is her cheeks were just so big and she was such a big baby that she wasn't really able to move around a whole lot. She kind of went from crawling around or from sitting around to walking because – yeah, she would just sit there, and if something was out of her reach, she'd struggle for it, like, eh, ah, and then just give up immediately and just say, oh, forget it, I'll just keep staring at this wall. <laughs> so, yeah, we miss those big, huge cheeks, but she is still a sweetheart. And speaking of sweet, my three-year-old it has always just been a complete sweetie. In fact, uh, she likes to call other people, sweetie, when they're pretending to play family, she'll say, sweetie, now come over here and eat your dinner. And I remember coming home from work one day and I pulled in the garage and she was just standing in the garage waiting for me to get out of, get out of my car. She had her little hands on her hips. She tilted her head to the side and she said, so how was the work today? Oh, it was so cute. It just melted my heart. Anyway, um, and it made me think of how cute I used to be when I was a baby, too, or even when I was just a little kid. I would say the darndest things. It really is true that kids do say the darndest things. Probably the best one-liner that I had as a kid, not really knowing that it was funny, was I was sitting around with my family, and everybody was talking about what time they were born. You know, I was born at 10.30 a.m., I was born at 4.35 in the afternoon, and it really confused me. And so I spoke up. Again, I was just a little kid. I spoke up, and I said, how can babies tell time? And it brought down the house. Everybody started laughing, even though I didn't know why. So that was probably the first time I remember making people laugh, and uh, I got that little taste of it, and I craved it and wanted it ever since. So, see, I started young. And here, here I am, uh, years later, making people laugh, or at least trying to make you laugh. That's the goal for screen cleaning, uh, to just make you laugh, to be entertained with good, positive things that uh, you can enjoy together as a family. And speaking of families, I need to get back to mine. I need to go back and enjoy my newborn. In fact, that's where I am right now. Thank you so much for joining us on Screen Cleaning. We're here every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern. We'll continue to bring you news about quality entertainment and helping you shine a light on what is good in entertainment. Until next time, this is Jeff Simpson on Screen Cleaning.